0: How Sure Are the Foundations? An Appeal to Roman Catholics by Colin Badger. In fond remembrance of Ron Abel, whose life was dedicated to the task of helping others see the way to truth. Before you begin, this is not a true story, but the issues it discusses are very real. Mark and Mary Moore are two Roman Catholics who take their convictions seriously, so seriously that when their beliefs are challenged by two friends, they accept the opportunity to examine the basis of their own beliefs. This begins a careful search for truth, which places a number of demands on Mark and Mary. Their search required perseverance, prayerfulness, and a willingness to weigh the evidence from their Bibles. Although their task was beset with a measure of frustration, Mark and Mary kept searching because finding the truth of the matter was vitally important to both of them. It is our sincere desire that all readers of this book will identify with the spirit in which Mark and Mary accepted this challenge. Although they were content and sure about their Catholic convictions, they were willing to give a fair hearing to an alternative view. Mark and his wife found their search rewarded them with a greater respect and interest in the authority of the Bible. In addition, they also discovered aspects about their Catholic beliefs that they had not realized before their search began. Their greater awareness proved to be very important to Mark and Mary as they determined their final conclusions. We hope that this little narrative and the information in the resource section that follows will encourage you to value truth as Mark and Mary came to appreciate it. May it encourage you to take seriously the challenge the Apostle Paul issued to all of us. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. CHAPTER 1. QUESTIONING FOR TRUTH OPPORTUNITY KNOCKS The sounds of morning activities stirred the Moore household. Mark Moore crossed his living room and heard the screen door rattle, then the sound of footsteps retreating from his front porch. He opened the door, scooped up the morning newspaper and made his way back into the living room. As his wife started breakfast, he dropped into his chair and glanced at the front page. One report caught his eye as he scanned over the articles. Turin Shroud authentic, says church official. Mark gave the article his full attention. It explained that the Turin Shroud was undergoing a series of scientific tests to determine whether it was genuinely the grave cloth used to bury Christ. Being a Roman Catholic with a keen interest in history, Mark had been following reports on the Shroud for several months. Upon finishing the article, he folded the newspaper section and carried it with him into the kitchen. Drawing a chair toward himself, he dropped the paper on the table and remarked casually to his wife, "'Mary, why are some of our church authorities spending so much of their time with this issue? An ancient burial sheet, if that's what it really is, can hardly be worth all the time and trouble that some of our officials are giving it. I really wonder about the value of such an investigation.'" His wife finished serving the breakfast, sat down beside her husband, then took a moment to skim the news article. Seeing Mark's puzzled look, she questioned his attitude. I don't think it's unusual at all. Relics and sacred objects of this sort have always been treasured by the Church. Tokens of its sacred history, that sort of thing. Mark continued slowly with his breakfast and then, using his fork as a pointer, he aimed it toward the article. Why don't we keep our convictions on the sure and obvious? I respect our Church history, but issues of this sort can't be free from some doubt or guesswork. Keep our faith on a sure foundation, that's what I'm saying. Mary didn't respond to her husband's comment, but she hung on to his point about a sure foundation. The principle was important to her as a Roman Catholic. Wasn't that part of Christ's teaching, when he called Peter the Rock? She kept thinking about it as she finished her breakfast. Mark prepared to leave for work, and after a goodbye to his wife, he headed for the door, keeping the newspaper with him. Before climbing into his car, he caught a glimpse of his neighbor, Alec Adams. Morning, Alec, he shouted toward his neighbor's yard. The greeting was returned, and each continued on their way to work. At coffee break that morning, Mark continued through the paper and happened to notice a news report about a serious car accident in the area of Niagara Falls. The accident had resulted in the death of a young passenger. Mark read the name, Murray Holt, several times and puzzled over its familiarity. At last he made the connection. It was Alec Adams' nephew. He had met him in front of Alec's house only a few weeks earlier. He read the article again, with greater interest, and noted that the boy had been a member of Alex Church. The funeral was to be held on the coming weekend. Mark continued thinking about the news article throughout the day. When he returned home that night, Mark showed the article about the accident to his wife, and they agreed to attend the funeral. The Adams and the Moors shared family news and frequently discussed their religious views. They often didn't agree, but their exchanges were always in a friendly tone. A phone call that evening confirmed their understanding about the accident, and the Moors accepted the invitation to go to the funeral with Alec Adams and his wife, Anne. On the morning of the funeral, the two couples met and began their drive from Toronto to Niagara Falls. The long drive provided an opportunity to discuss the tragic accident. The Adams had obviously been quite close to the boy who had died. As they approached their destination, Alec remarked, In fact, Mark, I had the privilege of baptizing Murray myself just last spring. The Moors glanced at each other in the back seat, but didn't respond to this additional detail. After a short silence, Mark carefully advanced his comment. Really? Do you have the authority to baptize in your church? Alec answered, yes. We don't believe the Bible teaches that one must have any special authority to baptize someone. I guess we've never touched on that topic before when we've talked about religion. And Alec, is it quite common for adults to be baptized in order to become a member of your church? Alec seemed to welcome the question. All our members have been baptized as adults, he answered as he glanced toward the back of the car. I'm convinced, Mark, that the Bible teaches that baptism is a matter of life and death, but it means nothing unless it's done in faith and with understanding. Mary had been following the discussion closely, and at this point she interrupted, asking pointedly, Alec, do you mean that if Murray had been baptized only as a child, before faith was possible, he would have died without any hope of going to heaven? And, before Mary had the opportunity to pose her second question, the car pulled into the driveway of the funeral home, and all were silenced by the more immediate concern. The Funeral The Moors were surprised by the simple form of the service, but the words of the speaker did even more to catch their attention. The speaker made most of his comments directly from the Bible, which he held in his hand for reference. He referred the audience to a passage from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Just as all men die in Adam, so all men will be brought to life in Christ, but all of them in their proper order. Christ as the first fruits; then, after the coming of Christ, those who belong to him. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 23. The speaker then commented, Murray shared the Apostle Paul's conviction here. Salvation comes with Christ's return to the earth. Immortality is Christ's reward, not man's birthright. Murray was baptized in the hope of receiving the reward of immortality when Jesus comes with his kingdom. Although Murray lost his life while young, he took steps which showed his belief that Christ will give eternal life when he returns to resurrect and judge his people. Until that day, Murray remains in the grave, waiting for the Lord's call, just as the Apostle assured Timothy, another young and faithful follower. All there is to come now is the crown of righteousness, reserved for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 The speaker's words began to nettle Mark. He reached forward and took a Bible from the bench in front of him, leafing through the pages he searched for the Corinthians passage used by the speaker. Mark and Mary shared the Bible, and read the passage several times. Mary then probed beyond the passage to the other quotation from Timothy, and again they studied the passage carefully. Mark gave a sigh, and finally returned his attention to the speaker, who was just then developing the point about promises. Friends, the scriptures describe the Christian hope as the promises made unto the fathers of Israel. Acts 26, verse 7. Unlike Murray, those without hope are either unfamiliar with what the scriptures mean by these promises, or they have chosen to reject their importance. That's why Paul reminded the Ephesians, You had no Christ, and were excluded from membership of Israel. Aliens with no part in the covenants with their promise. You are immersed in this world without hope and without God. Ephesians 2 verse 12 Mark searched his mind to find some guidance about these promises to which the speaker kept referring. He thought, something basic enough to affect salvation wouldn't have been overlooked by the Church. But I don't recall learning about the hope of Israel or the covenant to the fathers. Is an understanding of these promises really a matter of life and death? As his thoughts wandered, the speaker's closing quotation nettled him once again. Merely by belonging to Christ, you are the posterity of Abraham, the heirs he was promised. Galatians 3 verse 29 What do you mean? By the time the funeral service was over and people began returning to the parking lot, the Moors were eager to resume their discussion with Alec and Anne. Did you find that service a little different from the type you're used to?" asked Anne as they drove off. Mary accepted the question. Well, yes, quite a bit, in fact. Do you mind if we ask you a few questions about what the speaker said? Not at all, answered both Alec and Anne. Well then, let me see if I understand his first few points, continued Mary. He was showing that the true Christian hope involves Christ bringing salvation when he returns to the earth. If I followed correctly, he implied that immortality is therefore something that is given in the future, after Christ's judgment, not something that describes man's soul now. Anne Adams nodded her head in agreement. Yes, I'd say that's a fair summary of his message. Mary then asked, But what was he driving at by reference to some promises made to the fathers of Israel? Anne looked back to her friend and explained, The point about Christ not granting salvation until his future return to the earth ties into the speaker's other point about some important Old Testament promises. You see, the bringing of salvation at Christ's return is really the subject of the promises to the fathers of Israel. An understanding of the most basic New Testament teaching is helped by an understanding of the Old Testament. I guess we've never given those Old Testament promises as much attention as you folks have, admitted Mark. Alec glanced into his rearview mirror to check the traffic, and then pulled the car over to the curb. We've got to go right past the falls here. Niagara is beautiful this time of year, so why don't we take a short stretch before going on to Toronto? Anne and the moors agreed, and the two couples strolled over to the sidewalk bordering the river gorge. As they approached the drop of the falls, they stopped beside the railing and peered down toward the churning rapids in the gorge below. Makes me feel dizzy just to look at that sight, commented Mary, and to think that a young lad could be swept over those falls into that cauldron and live to tell about it. Mark mused. "'When was it, about twenty years ago?' wondered Anne. Mary nodded. "'About that, I can still remember reading the newspaper coverage and the pictures of the boy being brought out of the water, saved because he was wearing a life preserver. Amazing, isn't it?' Alec broke in. "'Just a small life preserver, which none of the others in the boat were wearing, and they drowned.' "'Yes, that was a great pitch for the sale of life jackets,' said Mark. "'I remember how that was used in advertisements afterwards.' You know, Mark, added Alec, I've often thought how the lad's experience has a real-life lesson to it, in more than one way. The boy was saved because someone took an effort to ensure his safety. The rest of those in the boat probably thought they were good swimmers and would never run into difficulty. It's like God's offer of salvation. The life preserver that God has offered is really accepted by very few in the world. Some can't be bothered with it because they already feel safe and secure. Others seem to rest in their confidence that problems won't arise. The reality of death isn't given a thought until a person is on the brink. Some seem to think that as long as you know how to swim, that's sufficient. But is it? Will knowing how to swim save you when necessary? Our understanding and faith in Christ and the way we attach ourselves to Him are part of what makes the life preserver designed by God. But we all have a responsibility to make sure that what we're trusting in is the life preserver designed by God not something that can't save us. It's a matter of life and death, as it was for that boy. You sound like a Sunday school teacher, joked Mark, as the couples turned back toward the car. While they resumed their journey back home, Mark began thinking about his friend's comments. Say, Alec, your point about the life preserver back there. I guess it kind of has a connection to the funeral today. I'd say it does, Mark, replied Alec, catching the point. Murray has lost his life, but he did take the time to carefully consider what kind of life preserver, so to speak, was necessary for an eternal life in the future. I guess Mary and I have always been quite content with our Catholic beliefs, and still are, but we couldn't say that we've really examined them critically, tested the life preserver, as you would put it. I guess things today have prompted a number of questions, interrupted Mary in a serious tone. I'm not convinced about your beliefs regarding baptism, Those promises that you say are basic to the true Christian hope need some more explaining. And what do you mean about Christ not giving immortality until he returns? And then, say, you've raised a real handful of issues with those last questions, Mary. Could we sort them out one at a time? We'll need a few get-togethers at home if we're going to do them any justice. Anne and I would be glad to bring our Bibles over some evening this week and have a chat over a cup of tea. How's that sound? asked Alec as he looked over the car seat to judge the moor's response. Mary and Mark hesitated. Then Mary remarked in a tone of uncertainty. I don't know, Alec. I really wonder whether religion is something to be argued about. You have your beliefs and we have ours. Providing we both live up to a Christian way of life, our beliefs will lead to the same end. Alec was now in Toronto and approaching the first intersection in their neighborhood. As he came to a stop at the lights, Alec took the opportunity to reply. I don't think that's the best way to look at our differences, Mary. The way to eternal life is compared to a man seeking treasure. Matthew 13, verses 43-46 If we value the treasure, then we will accept the job of searching carefully and double-checking that what we have is the genuine treasure, and not something less. And then added, Paul felt it necessary to tell believing Christians to prove all things, hold fast that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, KJV That's all part of building on a sure foundation for one's beliefs. At this point, Mark leaned over to his wife and whispered, Hey, do you remember what I said about foundations the other morning, when we were talking about the shroud? If we're positive that our beliefs are based on the sure and obvious, we've got no excuse to refuse their offer. Alec finally turned into his driveway and parked the car. Before getting out, he turned to Mary and Mark. Well, want to think about it more? Shall we get together? "'Accepted,' Mark answered decisively after checking his wife's expression. "'Good,' said Alec. "'If Thursday's okay, why don't we start with the question of authority?' As it came from Anne's last comment, "'What authority should we use to prove our beliefs or interpretations? "'That should be a good foundation for discussion.' Once the two couples got out of the car, Mark nudged his wife and looked toward Alec and Anne. "'A sure foundation. Just what I was saying to Mary. "'Fine. Let's look at the question of authority.' See you later in the week. As the Moors returned to their home, Mark remarked emphatically to his wife. Before we meet with the Adams this week, we must get the best answers to their questions and be ready to discuss the point about authority for our beliefs. Okay, then let's contact the priest and ask him for a little help. I'm sure he'll be able to give us some reading material from the parish library, Mary replied as they reached their house. Mark agreed and added with confidence. After a bit of preparation, Chapter 2 Reasoning from the Scriptures Preparation On the following Monday, it was past supper hour by the time Mark returned from his visit to the priest. He had been helpful in providing Mark with the answers he was looking for. When supper was over, Mary was eager to discover what Mark had learned. After a lengthy discussion with our Bibles, the priest recommended some reading material from his library, a couple of books written especially for non-Catholics, and a series of pamphlets, explained Mark. Let's see the books," said Mary, in curiosity. Well, here's one of them," said Mark, it's entitled The Faith of Millions, by J. A. O'Brien. And what about the pamphlets? asked Mary. They're all very up to date, replied Mark, as he spread them out on the dining room table. They're put out by the Catholic Information Service in New Haven, Connecticut, in the States. Each has the church imprimatur marked on the back. With that kind of approval, they'll represent our beliefs with authority. We should both study what we've got here before our meeting, and oh, before I forget, Father Davis reminded me that if we want to read up on anything in more detail than what's in these books, we can refer to the Catholic Encyclopedia. He says it's in the public library downtown. An open mind, a sound judgment. During the next few days, Mark and Mary applied themselves to the reading material which Mark had brought back. The Thursday meeting finally arrived, and both couples were prepared with their Bibles, Mark and Mary brought out some of the books they had been reading during the week and put them on the table. After the Adams arrived and were seated in the Moore's dining room, Anne Adams ventured the opening question. We're really glad that you folks are willing to have this get-together tonight and discuss your questions using the Bible, but I guess you're on rather questionable ground with your church authorities when you discuss issues on your own like this with the Bible. Anne, I'm not sure where you got that impression of the Catholic Church, Mark showed an eagerness to reply as he continued. Our church doesn't discourage Bible reading at all, and it's really not afraid to face questions of doctrine with an open and objective attitude. Perhaps that's the first point that should be cleared at the beginning of our discussion. But Anne pursued her comment further. Are you really suggesting that you are allowed to freely read the Bible and present your beliefs in an objective, is that the word you used, in an objective, open-minded way? Anne's voice faltered a little as she was caught off guard by Mark's confident approach. Sure, let me show you why I say that. I've got a book here written by a Catholic authority for non-Catholics. The book is called The Faith of Millions, and on page 82, Mark turned the book toward Alec and Anne, the author has a subtitle called Our Duty of Searching for the Truth. Just below the subtitle, the writer comments, There is a duty, however, resting upon everyone to search for the truth. A few sentences further, the writer asks but one favor of the non-Catholic reader, that he will examine the evidence with an open mind. Now just back a few pages. Mark leafed back to a section that he had marked. The writer says on page 22, the Catholic Church asks no more and no less. She is convinced of the objective weight and cogency of her credentials when correctly understood. She buttresses with no appeal to emotions. She is perfectly willing to have them stand or fall, be accepted or rejected on their intrinsic merit. Some of the words are a little weighty, but clearly an open-minded approach to church teaching is being urged. As far as using our Bible, Anne, I can show you from the notes in front of my Catholic New American Bible that Bible study is encouraged. Anne showed an obvious look of surprise, and decided to hold back any further comment. Alec, however, decided to probe a little further. Frankly, I have to agree that those lines express the right attitude toward searching. I am just wondering now how this questioning open attitude relates to the role served by the Church. Does the Church encourage you to simply take the Bible in hand and search out matters on your own? To look up the Bible passages that it uses and discover for yourself the weight of evidence behind your teaching? Mark thought for a moment. Well, no, that's not quite how it is. We rely on the authoritative guidance of the Church for the interpretation of what we read in the Bible. Private judgment in matters of Bible teaching is really not encouraged. Our church officials are trained spiritual leaders. They are more educated in matters of religion than any lay person. Just as you wouldn't pick up a medical book and question your doctor's diagnosis, so we wouldn't question the judgments of our authorities on the basic issues of belief. Anne perked up at Mark's last comment. Is there anything about this authoritative guidance in the front of your Bible? Perhaps in the section that you said gave encouragement for Bible study? Mary helped her husband find the part entitled, Interpreting the Bible, and she read it to herself. It says that only through the Church can the proper interpretation of the Bible be made available. It also claims here that the Church produced the Scriptures, and it is to be the one that interprets the Scriptures. Hmm, Alec rubbed his chin thoughtfully. I have a few problems with those claims, Mark. Thinking of the first quote from your book, about the Church bidding us to be open-minded and objective... There's a bit of tension between that and the claim that the Church is an authoritative voice for interpretation. It's like a detective who thinks that he has sufficient evidence to solve a case, but then when inquirers are shown the evidence, he restricts them to looking only at the pieces of evidence that he thinks are important. Furthermore, he shows them exactly how the clues must be put together and interpreted. If the seeker is told what he must find as he goes about looking, you might as well tell him to forget about considering evidence, Just tell him what his beliefs are and require him to faithfully obey." Mary and Mark sat back in their chairs for a moment and seemed to give Alex rejoinder some careful thought. But we need guidance when we're reading the Bible, Mary began. Otherwise it's just a case of someone groping in the dark. And unless the one who helps you is infallible, his guidance isn't worth much. Just the blind leading the blind. Mark continued his wife's point. There are two passages that I know of that suggest the need for infallible guidance against error. Let's look at them together. The Adams showed agreement, but seemed a little surprised that Mark was now going to use direct scripture support for his viewpoint. Let's look, for example, at Second Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, Mark suggested. He waited until Mary and the Adams had reached the verses, and then he read, Our brother Paul, who is so dear to us, told you this when he wrote to you with the wisdom that is his special gift. He always writes like this when he deals with this sort of subject, and this makes some points in his letter hard to understand. These are the points that uneducated and unbalanced people distort, in the same way they distort the rest of Scripture, a fatal thing for them to do." Mark then looked at Alec and Anne for a reply. Let's be careful what that passage is and is not saying, Alec answered. It is saying that some of Paul's writings are not easy to understand. Some points. He does not say that all of Paul's writings, or all scripture, is equally hard to grasp. If we need infallible interpreters, Peter doesn't suggest it anywhere here. Considering the Catholic belief that Peter was the appointed vicar of Christ, Peter would have had every reason to direct his readers toward HIS authoritative voice, or at least the authority of church leadership, but he doesn't point to such a source, just where we would expect Peter to urge it, if an infallible human guide was needed. Notice that earlier Peter began by reminding them to recall what was said in the past and the commandments of the Lord. Second Peter 3 verse 2 Do you see Peter's remedy against the dangers of wrong interpretation? Do you mean that the scriptures themselves are the infallible guide? Mark responded. Yes, said Alec. Throughout Peter's epistle, his solution to false teaching and bad examples is to encourage the believers to accept personal responsibility for guarding against error by growing in their knowledge of scripture. He urges them in 2 Peter 1, verse 5, But to attain this, you will have to do your utmost yourselves, adding goodness, understanding to your goodness. And verse 8, If you have a generous supply of these, they will not leave you ineffectual or unproductive. They will bring you to a real knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if that's the case, Alec, why does Peter, in this very letter, warn against using private judgment or interpretation? Mary piped in this comment as she pointed at her Bible page and looked toward Alec for an invitation to read what she had found. Alec replied, Okay, Mary, let's look at your quote then. She read, The interpretation of scriptural prophecy is never a matter for the individual. Why? Because no prophecy ever came from man's initiative. When men spoke for God, it was the Holy Spirit that moved them. Second Peter 1, verses 20-21 to Well, to be fair to the context, Alec added, Peter is not speaking about how believers are to reach correct interpretations of scripture. Rather, he is explaining how prophecy itself came. Prophets were moved from a source outside themselves. God alone is the author of what the prophets said or wrote. It did not come from the man's initiative. To use this passage as a warning against studying the scriptures without an authoritative church leader is entirely unrelated to Peter's comments. Anne slipped in a further point, looking toward Mark and Mary. In the context of this passage, 2 Peter 1, he refers to the nearness of his death. Verse 14. Peter is therefore concerned that his readers be given the best possible advice to firmly hold the same truths. 2 Peter 1, verse 12. What authoritative guidance does he point to for the future? Well, first, in this chapter, he urges them to trust in the witness that the apostles had given. I shall take great care that you will still have a means to recall these things to memory. Verse 15. Also note verse 17. His second reminder follows. So we have confirmation of what was said in the prophecies, and you will be right to depend on prophecy. Verse 19. Then follows the reason he can advise this. Because prophecy is not of human origin. Verses 20 and 21. This insistence on studying Bible revelations stresses the point we were just discussing. A thorough Personal knowledge of God's written message is the only infallible safeguard against wrong teaching, which will be right to depend on. You're saying then that these are the only two sources of light that Peter actually suggests for reliable guidance against error? Questioned Mary. Yes, that's right, answered Anne. In this section, Peter speaks of the record of prophecy as being a lamp for lighting a way through the dark, verse 19. But does he speak of an infallible succession of leaders that would follow him? No, he doesn't. Two sources are pointed to, the reader's recall of the apostolic witness and the light of prophecy. He urges them to depend on it and no other promise of future guidance is offered by Peter. This is precisely why Peter elsewhere in his letters directed his readers to the word of God as a dynamic power that would always be there for disciples to rely on. The word of the Lord remains forever. What is this word? Is the good news that has been brought to you. 1 Peter 1.25 Peter's stress is consistent. The authority, or guide, is what has been preached by the apostles and was said in the past by the holy prophets. 2 Peter 3.2 Mary then stood up from the table and looking at her guests said, I'm going to need a few moments to digest these points. How about a break for a cup of tea? Good idea, everyone agreed. I'll give you a hand in the kitchen, offered Anne. As the women went into the kitchen, Alec and Mark were left alone at the dining-room table. ''May I take a glance at those books and pamphlets that you've been referring to?'' asked Alec. ''Sure,'' replied Mark. ''Are you familiar with them at all?'' ''The one by O'Brien, The Faith of Millions, I have at home. I'd agree that's a useful source for Catholic teaching.'' Mark busied himself by looking in his Bible at Peter's epistles. Alec sampled some of the chapters of the book by O'Brien, as though he was looking for something in particular. After a few moments, Alec looked up from his reading and asked Mark, Say, would you mind if I scurried back home for a moment and grabbed a few books and papers? I think they may be helpful for our discussion. No, go right ahead, Alec, replied Mark. Search the scriptures. Mark kept looking through his Bible, and when Alec returned, Mary and Anne were bringing out the refreshments. Before they were finished, Alec indicated that he was eager to continue. While we were waiting for tea I went home to get a few references that I think are useful for our discussion. Do you mind if I share some of them with you? No, go right ahead, said Mark and Mary. Actually, Alec began, they are written by Catholics. I think I realize how important this question of private judgment or interpretation is to the main question we're discussing. I've noticed how often it comes up in your literature. One of the most striking statements that I've read concerning this is found in the New Catholic Encyclopedia, I came across it when I was doing some background study for a Bible talk. Perhaps you're familiar with the encyclopedia? Not directly, answered Mark, but our priest mentioned how authoritative and useful it is for reference. Okay then, I've copied a section dealing with this issue about the Church as the sole authority to make interpretation. The New Catholic Encyclopedia refers to the Church's decision at the Council of Trent. Authentic interpretation of the Church was formally stated by Trent. The Council declares that no one, relying on his own ingenuity in matters of faith and morals pertaining to the development of Christian doctrine, should distort sacred scriptures to suit himself, contrary to the sense that the Holy Mother Church has held and continues to hold, whose place it is to judge concerning the true sense and interpretation of holy scriptures. Dens, 1507. Notice on the same page here a quotation from Pope Leo the Thirteenth he wrote that it is impossible for any legitimate interpretation to be extracted from the Bible that is at variance with the doctrine of the Church. Any interpretation is therefore false that makes the sacred writers disagree, or that is opposed to Church doctrine. Alec raised his eyebrows slightly and said, I'd say that's fairly plain speech regarding the Catholic position. It would seem, from the Council statement, therefore, that use of personal judgment without the guidance of the Church involves dangerous risks. I would agree you know that it is not by man's ingenuity that we arrive at truth, but I would insist that God invites us individually to use our reasoning to help us interpret His message. We certainly don't trust personal feelings or interests, but comparing Scripture with Scripture and prayerfully asking for God's help, we have what is necessary to test the soundness of our beliefs. Otherwise, what does your writer O'Brien mean in his book when he bids us to have an open mind in our investigation of the objective weight of Catholic claims? How can this invitation have any meaning if, from the outset, all important decisions are infallibly made by the Church, regardless how an individual understands the scriptural evidence? I agree that some of those statements put limitations on personal judgment, said Mary, but I don't think that they are denying all the freedom necessary for a Catholic to have some responsibility for what he or she believes. I'm not so sure, Alec continued. On this very page, from the New Catholic Encyclopedia, there is an interesting comment. Indiscriminate reading of the Bible with independent interpretation was forbidden by Pius IV in 1564. For the same reasons, non-Catholic Bible societies, established to spread Bible translations to be interpreted without Church guidance, were reproved by Pius VII. By guidance, I believe it means that notes put in the margins of Catholic Bibles. I would gather from this that reading the Bible to find truth without the Church's interpretation is indiscriminate. It does assert that Bible societies, whose main purpose is to put a Bible in the hands of every man, have a dangerous charter, simply because their Bibles are just the Holy Scriptures alone, and not accompanied by comments giving the Church's own interpretation. And if you were to argue that the restrictions of these two popes are outdated, remember a modern authoritative Catholic reference is obviously citing them with approval. Before responding, Mark glanced at Mary, who seemed a little surprised at what Alec had just been quoting. It would seem rather difficult to claim open-mindedness with those restrictions imposed on a seeker of truth, but I'm still not convinced that the Church is really against freedom that allows one to search in a genuine way. Fair enough, Mark, replied Alec, since your encyclopedia here refers to the restrictions imposed by the Council of Trent, 1564, as long ago as it was, I'd like you to see something else on this very point. During the Council of Trent, officials of the Holy See requested legislation against the freedom of the press. The response of this request was included in an authoritative document called the Catechism of Trent. One of the most important parts of the Catechism is the section called the Ten Rules. The fourth of these rules actually prohibited even the reading of the Bible in the common, vulgar language of the people, unless a Church authority was present. Severe punishments were imposed on any who sold or read such translations, unless given church permission. Some years before the Council of Trent, the same denial of freedom had been expressed at the Council of Toulouse, in 1229. That council, in its fourteenth canon, decreed that the Bible in the common tongue was to be listed on the church's index of forbidden books. Are you familiar with the name John Wycliffe, Mark and Mary? He was one of the first Englishmen to challenge Catholic authorities on this issue and translate the Bible into English. I have an old book here which I brought over from the House, Annals of the English Bible. In the introduction, the author refers to the punishments Wycliffe faced for his translating work. The author describes how vexed the Catholic authorities were that Wycliffe insisted on continuing his work, even after several warnings. Quoting a church canon from Leicester, England, the church's sentiments are made rather obvious. Master John Wycliffe has translated the Gospel out of Latin into English, which Christ had entrusted to the clergy and doctors of the Church, that they might minister to the laity and the weaker sort, so that by this means the Gospel is made vulgar, and laid more open to the laity, common people, and even to women who can read, than it used to be even to the most learned and those of the best understanding. So the Bible is regarded as Church property, and when it could be controlled, Even the most learned were denied full access to its precious teaching. Perhaps all of this seems rather distant to us modern folk, but it should be remembered that all the decrees that we are considering were sanctioned by the highest Catholic authorities. This really relates to the very beginning of our discussion about authority and your concern that God's people have a reliable, spirit-guided leadership. If God does guide in this way, then those decisions of past councils must be regarded as products of the Spirit, guiding the Church and they cannot be ignored by us today. There is a definite contrast between the attitudes expressed in these council statements and the method used by God Himself in presenting His word to the world. The first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, was written in Hebrew, the common language of the Jewish people, when the Spirit gave it. The second part of the Bible, the New Testament, was written in Greek, a language understood by the entire Roman world. Not a passage in the Bible indicates that it should be so jealously guarded from being read. A final little piece of history before I finish with my share of quotes. I'm sure you're familiar with the important work of Pope Pius IX, who helped steer the famous Vatican I Council in 1870, during which the claim for the Pope's infallibility was finally settled. Well, it's interesting to discover that six years before this famous council, Pope Pius issued two significant encyclicals the Syllabus of Errors, and the Quanta Cura Both of these decrees were intended to severely limit the freedom which you and I would reckon as basic and necessary in order to genuinely search for and discover truth. To be specific, in 1864 Pius IX decreed, in approval of a previous decision by Pope Gregory VI, that the liberal thinkers in Europe Fear not to uphold that erroneous opinion most pernicious to the Catholic Church and to the salvation of souls, the insanity, namely, that the liberty of conscience and of worship is the peculiar or inalienable right of every man. Incredible, perhaps, but here we have your Church's spiritual leader telling us that freedom of conscience and worship is insanity. Are you sure, Alec, that we are understanding the Pope's intentions correctly? questioned Mary in an astonished tone. Quite sure, Mary, replied Alec. It would be fair, however, to refer to a fairly modern Catholic historian and check whether we are capturing the right sense of Pius's ruling. I brought over just such a book when I went back to the house a few moments ago. Here is the book, The Catholic Church in the Modern World, by E. Hales. The author refers to the period in Pius's rule when he issued the encyclical Quanta Cura, 1864. According to Hales, much of what was forbidden in that decree was based on another that had been issued earlier the same year, called the Syllabus of Errors. He comments regarding the syllabus. And so with the other contentious propositions of the syllabus, in relation to freedom of speech, the Pope refuses to recognize that it ought to be laid down as a principle of universal validity, at all times, that there should be absolute freedom of speech and absolute freedom of the press. I've been wondering about these last points. What was the reaction of the Catholic community to these papal decisions?" asked Anne. Well, Hales does comment on that on the same page I quoted from. The most recent and scholarly historian on the pontificate of Pius IX, Roger Abert of Louvain, has described its effect by saying that the majority of Catholics were stupefied. Agreed. Those quotes are rather startling, ventured Mark. It seems, Alec, that you've done a fair bit of reading on the topic. I'm still perplexed why our writers at least say that they welcome the non-Catholics to weigh or reason out the evidence, since even a Pope has regarded freedom of conscience as insanity. As I understand it, Mark, Alec added, the Church has to approve of persons using private judgment in making the first decision about the authority claimed by the Church, or whether one should become a Catholic or not, but such private judgment is not reliable after this first decision has been made in favour of your Church." It suggests that men are competent to form sound judgments on the first major decision, i.e. to accept the Church, but are quite incapable to use the same reasoning powers to help them judge or interpret, on their own, other matters of Catholic teaching. Or, put another way, the very process that may lead a man to judge that the Pope can speak infallibly is trustworthy up to that very decision, but after that, complete, unquestioned acceptance must be offered by the believer. He's not allowed to disagree. He must submit to the superiority and judgment of the church. You see, a man may therefore use his reason, his private judgment, to decide that the church is the spokesman of God's message. However, after this, he must use his reason not to criticize and reject, but to understand and apply what is given to him authoritatively. Anne looked around the table at this point and glanced up at the dining room clock. What do you say we stop here and get back at this next week? That's if you're agreeable, Mark and Mary. "'It is growing late, and we've covered a fair bit of ground,' replied Mark. "'Are you agreed, dear, that we get together again next week?' "'Sure,' said Mary. "'Meanwhile we can both do a bit more reading and thinking. "'Shall we meet at your house? "'Let's try Saturday morning?' "'Good idea,' the Adams replied. "'Say, before you leave,' added Mark, "'I have a passage here which I would like us to discuss next time. "'It's in John 14, a very important one in our literature "'dealing with the subject of church authority.' Alec and Anne looked up the chapter together. What verse, Mark? Verse 26. I noticed that our encyclopedia quoted it on the Xerox page you were reading from earlier in the evening, Alec. Mark reading from his Jerusalem Bible, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything. Early in verse 16, Jesus promised he will give you another Advocate to be with you forever. While Alec and Anne looked at the verses, Mark remarked, That seems to suggest a promise of infallible guidance for God's church in all ages. Alec and Anne were still looking at the passage after Mark's comment. Looking up, Alec grinned. I haven't an answer for that one on the spur of the moment. You've saved the best for last, have you, Mark? Mark appeared rather pleased. If you haven't an immediate answer, I guess I have. Alec and Anne then took their Bibles off the table and walked with Mark and Mary toward the door. As the Adams left, Alec quipped, See you Saturday, then, and thanks for the homework.
1: CHAPTER THREE. CAN THE CLAIMS BE CONFIRMED?
0: THINKING IT OVER. Mind the potholes, dear. If you keep walking like you're in a trance, you're going to have us both in the clinic with sprained ankles, warned Mary, as Mark skirted around a rut in the path. A good walk through these botanical gardens is a tonic for the old mind, as well as the body, Mark mused, more to himself than to his wife. A good way to comb over important thoughts. Mark lapsed again into his own reflections. "'How about sharing them, then?' prompted Mary. "'I've been thinking about our discussion with Alec and Anne. "'Alec's approach was interesting, "'examining the question of church authority from Peter's own writings. "'While Alec went back to the house that night, "'I read over the epistles by Peter to check what he was saying. "'You know, in that second epistle, "'chapter two is full of warnings about false teachers, "'but not a word, dear, about a need for an infallible human guide. "'And in the chapter following, Second Peter chapter 3, All the way through it, Peter puts the stress on believers being personally prepared. I guess it's one thing to say that the Church invites weighing evidence with an open mind, but it's another thing to consider exactly how she accepts that being done. Like with Bible study. It looks like we're being encouraged to personal study, but what are the conditions? Is it really self-discovery and letting the Bible speak when we have to have the Church interpretation in the Bible margin to tell us how to read it? "'You're sounding rather negative, dear,' said Mary. "'No, just trying to be fair with Alex's points. "'Well, let's wait to hear what he comes up with on your question from John 14. "'He did seem to stumble over that,' Mary added. "'They came to the edge of the gardens and made their way back home. "'A visit to the priest.' "'As the week passed, Mark and Mary read further from the literature that Mark had received from the priest. "'He wanted to be sure that he and Mary were prepared to discuss the question of church authority and tradition.' Another visit to the priest further helped Mark's understanding of the Catholic position. When I meet with these friends again, Father Davis, what points do you think I should stress with them? Mark asked. Mark, I do believe that it is essential to stress the promises that Christ made to his church in John chapters 14 to 16. He promised that the church would be led into all truth, as he explained in John 16 verse 13. Now that was given by Christ himself as a future promise for as long as the Church exists on earth. If such guidance from the Holy Ghost is not present in the Church, she must rely solely on human reasoning as the basis for beliefs. And would Jesus accept human reason as the standard of spiritual truth? Why, of course not. You see, Mark, from my own experience in such discussions, both you and your friend will agree on the need for supernatural revelation. But the point on which you will disagree is exactly where that revelation is to be found. Your friend, I imagine, will maintain that the only rule of faith is the written word of God. The Church of Rome, as you know, believes that while the scriptures are a rule of faith, there is also an unwritten word, which is contained in tradition, and which is of equal authority with the scriptures. She also recognizes the authority of the decrees of church councils, and of the pronouncements of popes. Try, then, to show your friend that, for Roman Catholics, the standard of truth is all the teaching of the Church. She knows this is trustworthy because she has visibly experienced the working of the Holy Ghost in her midst. Mark nodded in appreciation. Thank you, Father. Those answers are quite strengthening. Is there anything else that I might use in discussing this topic? Father Davis thought for a moment. Well, yes, there is the objective witness of the Church from history. What I mean, Mark, is that only the Roman Church can trace her origin back to Christ. Other groups sprang up many centuries into the Christian era. Clearly, they are branches with no roots reaching back to the source of truth, Christ and the Apostles. The unbroken link to Christ, as I call it, is the surest and most obvious appeal to the evidence that proves authority. I hope your friend is open-minded enough, Mark, to see that. Only the Roman Church is truly apostolic and has continuously experienced the Holy Ghost working in her community down through the centuries. Remember, Mark, that it is not from sacred scripture alone that the true Church draws her certainty about all that she believes and practices. Mark paused for a moment to give some thought to the priest's remarks. He then thanked him and returned home. He and Mary spent the next few days carefully considering what the priest had explained, and studying the booklets that he had loaned them. Infallible Guide what source? Are you ready, Mark? I think it's about time we were leaving, said Mary, as she went into the living room to get her Bible. I'm ready, just getting a few booklets to take over with us. As Mark caught up with Mary, he commented, I don't have all the booklets, since Alec asked me a couple of days ago if he could look at some of them before our discussion. At least he's willing to look at our literature on the subject, added Mary, as the couple left the house and proceeded on their way to their neighbor's house next door. After they were seated in the Adam's dining room, Anne began by asking Mark and Mary, Well, where would you like us to begin? Could we pick up the discussion on the question I asked from John 14, requested Mark. Fine, replied Alec. If I recall rightly, you were looking at verses 26 and 16, where Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit, or Advocate, after his resurrection. Yes, said Mark, and more importantly, the fact that he promised to be with them forever to help them teach. Catholics see this passage in John to be related to another, similar to it in Matthew 28, verse 20. Mark turned up the passage. It reads, Teach them to observe all the commands I gave you. I am with you always, yes, to the end of time. And your point again, Alec asked? That an infallible human guide for all ages is necessary to preserve the true Church from error. This is more than just wishful thinking, it was actually promised by Jesus. Besides the New Catholic Encyclopedia quoting these verses, Alec said, I noticed in reading your booklets this week that this one called The Papacy, Expression of God's Love, referred to these very passages when explaining the infallibility of the Pope. Alec made the reply as he located one of the booklets on the table. That's right, Mark answered. Alec picked up the booklet he was referring to and read aloud. This infallibility of the Pope is really part of the infallibility of the Church itself. If it was not to fail, the Church had to have some built-in divine assurance that whatever it first believed, as a community, and then taught as a community, would be the faithful interpretation of the Gospel of Christ Page twenty, And I noticed, Alec continued, that in the supporting passages quotes are taken on page 21 all the way from John 14 to John 16. Is that significant? Mary asked with curiosity. Yes, because John 14 to 16 is really a complete unit which relates to Jesus' private instruction to his disciples after the Last Supper. By coincidence, this leads us to an important observation in understanding what Jesus means by his promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me be sure that I've got the main point. This passage is used by Catholics to establish the claim that, in matters of teaching, the Holy Spirit guidance was promised to the Church, and this was promised forever. Mary and Mark looked for each other's approval, and then nodded to Alec in agreement. So, How would you answer that, Alec?" asked Mark. Well, first, let's keep in mind a point made for Mark chat last week, Alec began. If your interpretation of these passages is correct, that an infallible succession of guided leaders would follow Peter and the Apostles, we should expect to find New Testament writers referring to this succeeding guidance. We would expect Peter especially to refer to this in warning against false teachers. Isn't it peculiar, therefore, that in Peter's own writings he does not refer to such a promise as that in John fourteen? He doesn't point to any other infallible source other than the written scriptures. We would expect to find this, but we don't find it. Okay, we've touched on some of that already, said Mark. What do you believe Jesus meant? Alec continued. First, does John fourteen twenty six, sixteen, or Matthew twenty eight twenty teach that this guidance, in teaching, would be continued past the Age of the Apostles? Or was this promise restricted to the Age of the Apostles? How can we determine that? asked Mary. Let's check the context, shall we? said Alec. As I mentioned earlier, John 14 verse 26 is really part of a unit that runs from chapter 14 to 16. We need to consider that entire section in order to grasp the Lord's meaning. Now from the quote I read in your booklet, The Catholic Church believes that this promise of infallible guidance applies to the Church generally. The Church had to have some built-in divine assurance. It reads on page 20, This infallibility of the Pope is really part of the infallibility of the Church itself. But is this correct? To whom specifically did Jesus offer this divine guidance in teaching? I would agree with the booklet. It was to be the Church for all time, said Mary firmly. Well then, let's look at the whole section from John fourteen to sixteen, said Alec. John fourteen twenty six is repeated almost exactly in John fifteen twenty six, but with an important addition. We'll read it from your Jerusalem Bible. When the advocate comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who issues from the Father, he will be my witness. Are you suggesting, then, Alec, by your stress on, to you, that this promise of infallible teaching was addressed just to the apostles?" "'I am,' replied Alec. Notice how the next verse reads, "'And you too will be witnesses, because you have been with me from the outset,' verse 27." "'What's the point?' asked Mary." "'Well,' Alec replied, "'those to whom Jesus is making the promise of the Holy Spirit gift are very clearly identified. The you are those who have been with Jesus personally from the beginning of his ministry, in fact, those with him at the Last Supper. But why was it so necessary to have been with Jesus to receive this special gift for witnessing? Mary returned. That's a key question, Mary, said Alec, because although the Holy Spirit was a promise of infallible guidance to these men, the miracle would operate in a very specific and limited way. In this sense, the Holy Spirit would be a very obvious miraculous gift. It would prompt the disciples to recall what they had personally witnessed while they were with Christ during his three-year ministry. Notice he says, you too will be witnesses because you have been with me from the outset, verse 27. But isn't the witness of the apostles separate from the witness of the Holy Spirit or Advocate, urged Mary again? I guess it can't be, Mark piped in. The margin note in John fifteen twenty-seven in our New American Bible indicates that the witness of the disciples was the same as the witness of the paraclete, or the advocate. I think that means that the Apostle's outward witness was an expression of the Holy Spirit operating from within them. Mary looked around rather surprised. Alec and Anne also seemed a little taken aback by Mark's quote. I'll agree to that, Alec began. The key point is that the gift of the Holy Spirit for authoritative teaching was limited to those who could be assisted to recall what they had personally witnessed. Now. Just look at how this sheds light on that passage in John 14.26, which we started with. It reads in part, The Holy Spirit will teach you everything and remind you of all that I said to you. Hey, I haven't seen that connection before either, interrupted Anne, looking at her husband. Alec continued, It certainly was a miracle to ensure infallible teaching, but it was a miracle with limitations, limited to what the Twelve had previously experienced. However, there's a further point to this. Mark and Mary, do you remember what the disciples were directed to do in seeking to replace Judas after Jesus had been resurrected? The apostles had to appoint a replacement, didn't they? suggested Mary. Matthias, wasn't it? added Anne. Right. Except to be accurate, the apostles didn't do the appointing. It was divinely decided, as Acts 1 verse 24 informs us. Significantly, it was Peter who handled the procedure in finding a successor to replace Judas. And connecting tightly with all that we've just noticed in John's Gospel, Peter spells out the qualifications for a successor. Before you go further, Mark interrupted. Let's not skip over the fact that Peter is doing the organizing here. He's the leader of the community as Christ's successor. He certainly is leading on this occasion, Mark. But if, as you believe, Peter is the first of a succession of spirit-guided leaders, let's catch what he says about the qualifications needed to be a successor, suggested Alec. Peter sets out narrow limits in giving the qualifications for apostolic succession. We must, Greek, it is necessary, therefore choose someone who has been with us the whole time that the Lord Jesus was traveling round with us, someone who was with us right from the time when John was baptizing until the day when he was taken up from us, and he can act with us as a witness to his resurrection. Acts 1.21 See the point again, as we noticed it in John 14 and 15? A true successor to the apostles required very specific and unique qualifications. Peter indicates that the replacement had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. And why? Well, here's where John 14-16 to 16 helps us. Because the Holy Spirit's miraculous witness to the Church only acted through individuals who had personally witnessed the Lord's ministry. Otherwise, as John 14 and 15 require, the candidate could not be guided or prompted to recall such previous experiences. Qualifications for apostolic succession were therefore restricted by a definite time factor. Peter is the very one who stresses these unique limitations. Anyone who claims to succeed Peter or any of the apostles is improperly claiming that position unless they meet the qualifications that Peter himself issued. Can any church leader today meet Peter's guidelines? Have they personally witnessed the Lord's ministry on earth? Did they begin from the time of John the Baptist and continue until the Lord's resurrection was revealed to them? And even when all those qualifications were met in Acts 1, only one of the two was chosen by the Holy Spirit. I guess you could say, added Anne, that the chief qualifications of a spirit-guided apostle was to be an eyewitness, which would demand the same from any potential successor. I believe that's what John 14.26 points to, Alec agreed. At this point, Anne thought of a further comment. Turning to Alex, she said, If I follow this connection between John 14 and Acts chapter 1, there's a few more conclusions that can be drawn out. If a successor to the apostles had to have these very special qualifications, and if the key factor was that the individual had to be an eyewitness, then after the death of such eyewitnesses, no other people could even qualify to succeed. Those very unique credentials for teachers would be impossible for those living beyond the Age of the Apostles. I don't see how that conclusion can be escaped, said Alec. So let me ask something else on this point. According to the New Testament, was a successor ever appointed to any other departed Apostle after Judas was replaced by Matthias? Everyone thought for a moment, but no one could offer any suggestion. The answer is plain from the silence of the New Testament, Alec added, with the end of the Apostolic Era People with such unique qualifications were gone for good. But is there any detail between John 14-16 to 16 that stresses this time limitation for Spirit-guided teaching? asked Mary. Indeed there is, said Alec. I noticed in John 14-16, according to your Jerusalem Bible, that the promise of the Spirit's guidance in teaching is expressed as being forever. But another modern translation, Jung's literal translation, as well as others, seems to come closer to representing the original word as the age. The original word you see is aeon, which often means an age or era. According to one respected Greek authority, which I've brought to the table here, the following four meanings for aeon are given. 1. One's lifetime. 2. An age or generation. 3. A long space of time, an age. 4 a definite space of time, an era, epoch, age, period. This is from Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon. I've read all four possibilities offered by this authority, and each of them is much more specific or limited than the rendering forever. Elsewhere in your Jerusalem Bible, the word is translated never in John 13:8 to describe Peter's own lifetime. Anne interrupted. But if your points about John 14:26 are correct, Alec, that the promised Holy Spirit gift for teaching is confined to those who lived in Jesus' own age, then we have a definite clue from the scripture itself that Jesus meant a specific era. The immediate context in John, where the word aeon occurs, should determine its sense. In the context of John 14-16, the promise of the Spirit has limitations attached to it. It clearly defines those in whom it could work, thereby limiting how long it would be available. The lifetime of the apostles described an era, generation or age. The rendering forever ignores these pointers. That's obviously why some other Bible versions have selected age to represent the time period. Say, is there any other indication, Mary asked, that this Holy Spirit gift for authoritative teaching was limited to a particular period? That it wasn't forever? I mean, any other proof in other writings in the New Testament? I believe so, Mary, said Alec. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, Paul states... Love does not come to an end, but if there are gifts of prophecy, the time will come they must fail, or the gift of languages, it will not continue forever, and knowledge, for this, too, the time will come when it must fail. By knowledge, Paul is referring to the spirit gift of knowledge, as is clear from an earlier chapter, 12 verses 4 to 8. Each of these gifts relates to the teaching roles of the Holy Spirit, but they are limited in the time that they would be available. They would fail and not continue forever. Paul's statements here simply reinforce and harmonize with the conclusions that we have drawn from the Acts and John's Gospel. That seems a rather carefully developed argument, Mark finally commented, but we'll need to look at these passages on our own before we could say that you've satisfied our concern. What you're saying, then, has a couple of implications as I see it. One is that, if these promises in John's Gospels aren't able to prove the Catholic claim for continued infallible guidance, then some of our Catholic traditions must be re-examined. Secondly, if there weren't other successors to the Apostles, the Pope's claim to be the successor of Peter is also called in question. Yes, I'd say those Catholic convictions would be directly affected by the conclusions drawn from those passages in John, Acts, and Corinthians," Alec agreed. The sound of loud young voices began to filter into the Adams' dining room as Alec finished the last comment. Anne glanced at her watch and then looked toward the hallway in the direction of the voices. "'Sound like the kids have returned from their ball game. It's almost lunchtime, and we're only just getting into this subject.' Anne looked to the moors for a response. "'Say, it's Saturday anyway, Anne,' said Mark. "'We could split for lunch and then get back together later in the afternoon. That's if Mary will let the lawn cutting wait until tomorrow.' Mark looked expectantly at his wife. Now, that's a clever line, dear, said Mary. I guess the lawn can wait. We're too involved in this to postpone it for another week, I guess. Fine, let's give those hungry players their lunches and then meet back here in the afternoon. Chapter 4 Living Words Are the Living Guide TRADITION OR THE BIBLE Beliefs are only as sure as the foundations they are built on. That must be the tack that Alec is taking in this discussion. Mark sat in his kitchen, reviewing the topics that had been discussed with the Adams over the past few weeks. Remarking to his wife again, Mark added, He must realize how basic the issue is for many of our Catholic traditions and practices. I believe that it's obvious to Alec that the Catholic Church emphasizes the claim for authority more than most churches, said Mary as she began to clean up the lunch dishes. I think Alec seems to view the church as having imposed severe restrictions in the past because of her trust in her own authority. I suspect that Alec isn't convinced that the church has really changed that much over the years, don't you? Mary paused in her activity for a moment. And then his points from John's Gospel come into the picture. Do those passages support the claim for continued Holy Spirit gifts to others beyond the time of the Apostles? Alex's answers, right from the context of John 14, aren't easy to ignore, Mark. Agreed, but I'll have to take a second look at those passages again before I'm convinced, answered Mark. But from the way Alec is approaching the Catholic claim for authority, he will have to consider a few more issues, such as, Questioned Mary? Well, to cover all the bases, we'll need to take a good look at what the Church means by tradition, and whether tradition not directly taken from Scripture can be used for doctrine. "'But if he brings that in, he's bound to discuss the authority of the Pope, don't you think?' Mary suggested. "'If he does,' said Mark, "'it won't be time ill-spent. "'So many other issues that we could discuss really stem from our Church's claim for authority.' "'Mary answered, "'Fine. Let's be going then, dear.' After they arrived at the Adams, the two couples decided to review what they had covered earlier that morning, but they were immediately interrupted. "'Is that the doorbell, Anne?' Alec paused to listen. Anne nodded and then left the dining room table for the front door. A moment later she returned, and looking in Mark and Mary's direction, she asked, "'Do you folks know a Mr. David McKnight? He's at the door. Says he tried your house, but your daughter told him that you were over here.' "'Oh, yeah,' Mark said as he stood up to go greet the visitor. "'I forgot. He's our lay Bible class leader. He promised to come around today to help Mary and I with the reading material from the priest.' As Mark went to the front door, Anne said, Mark, don't feel you have to leave him at the door. Please invite him into the dining room here. That's good of you, Anne, Mark said. I'll see if he's got a minute. Mark went into the front hallway, and then could be heard inviting his friend to meet the Adams. As the two of them reached the others at the table, Mark was filling in Mr. McKnight about the morning's discussion. Folks, this is my good friend David McKnight, explained Mark. Welcome, pleasure to meet you, responded Alec and Anne together. "'Dave has several other errands to run, so I couldn't twist his arm for a coffee,' remarked Mark, as he pulled a chair over for his friend. As Mr. McKnight looked at the Bibles and books spread over the table, he was tempted to stay a while. Offering a warm smile to the group at the table, he said with a tone of enthusiasm, "'Great to see the books open. Are you in the middle of it, or just starting the discussion?' Mary replied, "'Well, Dave, we've just finished part of a topic, and now we're looking at where the conclusions are pointing.' We're about to look at the importance of tradition in the Catholic faith. Say, you're rather up on explaining that sort of thing? Maybe you could offer an explanation as to how tradition fits into the picture, especially how it relates to scripture and church authority. I guess I could if you'd like, said Mr. McKnight. There's more than one way of explaining it, of course. The one I use for parish studies starts by explaining that God's revelation to man consists of two things, revelation through the written message, And revelation is given through real events. Both of these forms of revelation are given to the true Church and always remain in her privileged care and control. The Church acts as a mediator through whom this revelation is interpreted to the faithful. Really, Catholics prefer to describe this revelation as the divine deposit, and in turn it consists of two key elements, scripture and tradition. These are not viewed as distinct, but merely different forms or expressions of God's total revelation to the faithful. Can you offer a definition of tradition, Dave? asked Mary, as though for Alec and Anne's sake more than her own. Well, the definitions can vary, but it's important to stress that tradition is meant to be a helpmate to Scripture in its role as an interpreter. Tradition is not in conflict with Scripture, and it can be expressed in written form or through the life and activity of the Church. Essentially, tradition is Scripture lived in the Church. Say, Mark, do you have your copy of Wilfred Dewan's book? The one we're using in our parish study group. Catholic belief and practice? There's a definition in that that's rather handy. Mark reached into his briefcase beside his chair to locate the book referred to. Perhaps the most important witness to the tradition of the Church, continued Mr. McKnight, is the writings of those known as the Church Fathers, and their creeds established by Church councils. You mentioned that the Church's role is to be a mediator, Anne broke in. What part of the Catholic Church serves that function? Oh, that's the Magisterium of the Church, Mr. McKnight replied. Spying one of Mark's booklets on the table, which was obviously familiar to him, Mr. McKnight quickly thumbed to the middle section, cleared his voice a little, and quoted, The duty of interpreting God's Word, whether the Word is in scriptural form or not, has been entrusted exclusively to the teaching office of the Church, often called the Magisterium. This teaching office is exercised by the Pope, and the bishops, in the name and by the authority of Christ. A phrase, which is sometimes learned by priests, coming as it does from the Vatican I Council, says that the magisterium is to guard faithfully, judge authentically, and declare infallibly the content of the revealed deposit. Is that helpful? asked Mr. McKnight, looking over to Anne Adams. Yes, quite, replied Anne. Thanks for that insight. Mark now found the book referred to earlier by Mr. McKnight and passed it to him. Quickly, Mr. McKnight located a section defining tradition, and he read aloud. Tradition, the life and consciousness of the whole church, is the necessary interpreter of the scriptural message. The Word of God in the church clarifies and interprets the Word of God in Scripture. Mark glanced across the table to catch Mary's eye. The two of them could anticipate Alec's immediate question. Thanks for those very clear quotations, Mr. McKnight from that last quotation, I would understand that the church, with its traditions, is chief in importance, and is therefore the true interpreter of the Bible. I would agree, said Mr. McKnight, because the living voice precedes the written word, and therefore it has priority. What you are saying agrees with what I read in this little booklet, Divine Revelation. I think it's on page 9 that it says, Tradition includes scripture, offered Alec. Yes, that's well put, agreed Mr. McKnight. Alec added, which again suggests that the church and tradition are given primary importance and that they are essential for the interpretation of scripture. Again, Mr. McKnight acknowledged Alec's conclusions. Then he looked toward a book on the table and commented, If that's O'Brien's book, The Faith of Millions, you should find a number of useful explanations about this topic in there. Alec seized upon this remark, and while reaching for the book he asked, I've been reading this book myself. Could I check a few points from it? Why, sure, replied Mr. McKnight. Turning toward the middle of the book, Alec found a spot he was familiar with and stopped. On page 176, O'Brien says this, The only authority which non-Catholics have for the inspiration of scriptures is the authority of the Catholic Church. Later on the same page, O'Brien comments, She, the Catholic Church, is not the child of the Bible, as many non-Catholics imagine, but its mother, She derives neither her existence nor her teaching authority from the New Testament. She had both before the New Testament was born. On the page before this, page 175, O'Brien makes a familiar claim. If she, the Catholic Church, had not declared the books composing the New Testament to be the inspired word of God, we would not know it. Alec continued, Therefore the Catholic Church is really claiming that supreme authority lies with the Church and not the Scriptures mainly because it believes that the Church and tradition came before the Scriptures. I would agree with O'Brien on that, affirmed Mr. McKnight. He was quite a capable spokesman for the Church. I wonder if we could dig a little deeper, Mr. McKnight, pursued Alec. I mean, what exactly is the reasoning behind such importance being given to the Church and its tradition? Well, first of all, the Bible itself is not clear and intelligible to all, suggested Mr. McKnight. I see, said Alec. In fact, that's how O'Brien puts it in his book. Would another reason be because the Church does not believe that all the teachings of the Christian faith are to be found in the Bible alone? Yes, I'd say that's true, agreed Mr. McKnight. At this Mark looked at his friend with a little surprise, and then he turned in Alec's direction as he realized that he was again looking into O'Brien's book for a quote. There's quite an interesting statement on this from O'Brien, if I can find it. Ah, here it is, said Alec. There are certain truths which Christ and the Apostles taught which are not recorded in the Scriptures, but which are embodied in the life, practice, and ministry of the Church, in her written and unwritten traditions, which supplement the Biblical record. She is not dependent upon it for her existence, nor is she limited in her doctrine to it. Page 186. Mary then interrupted and asked for a little clarification. Dave, would we agree with that quote from O'Brien? Yes, Mary, quite definitely. That's a fair statement of the Catholic position. Orion knows his religion. But that's clearly stating that some of our teachings or traditions are definitely not found in the Bible, that the Church really doesn't depend on the Scriptures for her spiritual life. Or am I missing the idea? No, you've understood that correctly, said Mr. McKnight confidently. But don't forget that unwritten tradition is a complement to the written. It adds to it and clarifies it. As the Church moves through time, the living tradition explains God's revelation anew in the light of different conditions. Scripture, you see, needs to be interpreted in the view of the changing times. Eugene Maley says as much in his introductory section to our New American Bible. Tradition, you must remember, is alive, moving, and developing. Would that be a further reason for stressing the importance of the Church and tradition, the fact that they are living? asked Alec. Mr. McKnight noticed the added twist that Alec gave to the word living and grinned in agreement, expecting a follow-up again from Alec. Isn't this belief in the living tradition a very key reason for the church stressing it as being more important than the written scripture? asked Alec. This also implies that the Bible is really viewed by Catholic teachers as dead when it is separated from the church living voice or tradition. Mark and Mary appeared slightly indignant at this last comment from Alec. But just as Mark was about to correct Alec, Mr. McKnight brightened and said with obvious satisfaction, "'Exactly, Mr. Adams, you'd followed the point right through. Have you considered changing faiths?' Mr. McKnight added this Mark in a teasing manner. Alec exchanged a chuckle with Mr. McKnight and added, "'No, not really. I'm just an interested inquirer. I take it that the final conclusion of all this would be that the Church believes it can extend salvation to believers even without the Bible. Would that be right?' Mr. McKnight nodded slightly, and taking O'Brien's book once again, he smiled and said, Let me have the last quote of the day, Mr. Adams. I'll just turn to page 176 here and give you a well-informed reply. If all the books of the Bible and all the copies thereof were blotted out, she, the Catholic Church, would still be in possession of all truths of Christ and could still continue to preach them as she did before a single word of the New Testament was written. Mark was now quite unsettled, and with a slight tone of demand in his voice he asked, Dave, do our church writings ever come out directly and say that the Bible by itself just consists of dead letters? I'm having a hard time with that point, and I'm rather shocked that the church would admit to being able to make do entirely without the Bible. Mr. McKnight, still having the book in hand, took a quick glance for the index and then seemed to spot what he was looking for. After returning to the front of the book, he stopped and first explained. O'Brien's section begins here with the subtitle, Demands Living Interpreter. The simple fact is that the Bible, like all dead letters, calls for a living interpreter. On the next page, 186, he states, Just as the Supreme Court is the authorized living interpreter of the Constitution, so the Catholic Church is the living authoritative interpreter of the Bible. Yes, this is perhaps the key reason why greater stress is given to the Church and tradition over the written scriptures. That's also why the ongoing guidance of the Holy Spirit is a kind of cornerstone in the Catholic religion, added Mr. McKnight as an afterthought. Mark and Mary had fallen silent in thought. Finally Mark spoke up and asked Dave McKnight, Related to this issue of tradition and church authority, Dave, earlier this morning we looked at some of the scriptures that to Catholics indicate Christ promised the continued inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Alec objected, as he tried to show that such guidance for authoritative teaching was strictly limited to the Apostles. Without going over the same passages from John's Gospel, what other Bible support can you offer, Dave, for our teaching about this? Mr. McKnight was eager to respond, and asked to use a Bible from the table. According to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, one of the last promises Jesus made to the Apostles was that the Holy Ghost would continue with the Church forever, or until the end of the world. Let's read it together, here from Matthew 28, verse 20. Teach them to observe all the commands I gave you, and know that I am with you always, yes, to the end of time. Those words are understood by the Catholic Church as a vital promise that would ensure the truth of its own teaching. I don't see how anyone can get around such a clear promise. To the end of time. It is this supernatural gift which gives the Catholic Church its identifying marks or signs. She is given the power to be a unity, to be holy, to be truly Catholic, and to be apostolic. Mark's expression showed obvious satisfaction, and he looked toward Alec for a response. Alec continued studying the Bible page, and then looked over toward Mr. McKnight. It is rather crucial to your argument that Christ's promise was given to the end of time. In our earlier discussion this morning, I pointed out that the use of this expression, end of time, as in John 14.26, does not, from its original meaning or use in the New Testament, necessarily mean for eternity. It can be used to describe a very limited era, like the age of the apostles. A careful study of the term's use in the New Testament is important before one can determine its meaning here in Matthew 28. But Mr. Adams, insisted Mr. McKnight, there is also the more obvious proof that such promises were passed on from the apostles in the various signs that the Church has displayed as proof that the Holy Ghost is working among her shepherds. There is ample reason to believe that passages like those in John and Matthew 28 were given for eternity. They were lasting, supernatural gifts to the Church. The word signs is an important aspect of the Lord's promise, isn't it, Mr. McKnight? Alec remarked. Evidence of these signs is the best test as to whether they are now available, exactly as they were with the Apostles. Therefore, What were the signs that indicated this Holy Spirit presence with the Apostles? You mentioned Mark's account of Jesus' promise in chapter 16. Mark quotes Jesus as saying, These are the signs that will be associated with believers, i.e. the eleven remaining disciples, verses 19-20. to In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall have the gift of tongues, they will pick up snakes in their hands, and be unharmed should they drink deadly poison. They will lay their hands on the sick, who will recover. Mark 16, verses 17 and 18. Now, Alec continued, those Catholic leaders who today claim to be successors of the apostles in their possession of the Holy Spirit gift, do they show obvious and continuous proof of these very signs? Other scriptures indicate that the apostles were able to strike a man blind, Acts 13, verse 11, raise one from the dead, Acts 20, verses 10 to 12, or heal a cripple, Acts 3, verse 6. All these signs were clearly obvious to the senses of those who observed the events. That's very unlike, for example, the claim that bread is literally changed into the Savior's body with no physical evidence that such a miracle has taken place. Mr. McKnight paused, and then replied carefully, Well, to be sure, supernatural signs like those listed in Mark 16 are not exercised by all who believe they have a claim on the promised gifts. Some Catholics do believe they have the charismatic gift of tongues. But, restricting ourselves to those in the Church who claim to have these holy signs by apostolic succession, can all of them demonstrate the operation of these signs in their ministry? persisted Alex. Where is the priest or bishop who can resist the deadly effects of the serpent's venom, or a poisonous potion, raise the dead, or give sight to the blind? With the Apostles, such gifts were clearly demonstrated. Acts 2 verse 43 states here, Alec pointed to the passage he had located, the many miracles and signs worked through the apostles. The same evidence of their signs is noticed in Acts five verse twelve. So many signs and wonders were worked among the people at the hands of the apostles. These signs were not just demonstrated occasionally, Mr. McKnight. These apostolic signs were frequently in evidence during their ministry. But really, Mr. Adams, aren't you asking for an unreasonable kind of proof? questioned Mr. McKnight. Do you really believe that such miraculous signs are essential in order for one to claim the same influence of the Holy Ghost? And besides, are these signs really the most important signs for the man of God to display? Well, Mr. McKnight, I would insist that they are indeed. That is, if one claims that the Church has inherited these gifts directly from the hands of the Apostles, the evidence I am pressing you for is the evidence that should be abundantly obvious if your Church's claims are true. When the Apostle Paul's authority was questioned by those in Corinth, he could offer the following proof of his relation to the Apostles. You have seen done among you all these things that mark the true Apostle, unfailingly produced, the signs, the marvels, the miracles. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. These were the true signs of one directly related to the Apostles. These important credentials were readily offered. Does your priest, bishop, or the present Pope offer such proof of their claim to the authority, as did the Apostle Paul? I'm interested in your response, Mr. McKnight. Mark and Mary turned their eyes toward their friend in eager anticipation. To be perfectly honest, Mr. Adams, I'd be unwise to claim that such authorities could readily display the kinds of proof or signs that you've described from the Acts or from Paul. The Holy Ghost does, however, work in the midst of our Church, I'm quite sure of that, but just exactly when and how he works is not always apparent to human eyes. It's one of the mysteries of our faith. If I'm in the area in the next week or so, I'll make a point of dropping in and discussing this a little further. Mr. McKnight seemed to suddenly catch himself, and looking at his watch, said apologetically, Say, I promised I wouldn't stay long, and I do have a few more errands to run. I hate to break this intriguing discussion, but if you'll excuse me, I would better be going. And don't worry, I'll find my way out. He nodded to everyone at the table. Thanks for letting me join in. Then he left through the hallway and went out the door. While we all gather our thoughts, smiled Anne, I'll put the kettle on for a cup of tea. Mary, would you like to join me in the kitchen and have a stretch from all this sitting? Mary agreed and followed Anne into the kitchen. The Bible speaks for itself. As the two couples finished their tea, the discussion was resumed by a comment from Anne. As I think of those quotes you offered from O'Brien back at our first meeting, and what Mr. McKnight first explained about church authority and tradition, it appears that the Catholic Church really isn't offering objective proof. She appeals to herself for proof of her claims. The church may use scripture for some of them, but then she fixes the meaning of those scriptures. Does seem a little awkward, Mary broke in. O'Brien and Dave are both saying, if I understand them, that the scriptures don't have any authority outside of the church itself. I'd agree that is puzzling," Alec commented, as he joined his neighbors at the table and sat down. The Church states a doctrine to be authoritatively true. We ask for objective proof. She refers to scripture or tradition or both. Then if we ask how she knows that her interpretation of scripture is correct, she explains that they are her sacred property and that she has divine guidance to interpret them, which all goes back full circle to the very claim for which we are asking proof. How does the Catholic Church prove objectively that her understanding is authoritative? I fail to see how this is testable evidence. It's simply arguing in a circle. What bothers me most, added Anne, is the obvious conclusion from all this, that Scripture is really subject to both the Church and her tradition. The Bible is viewed as a dead letter by itself, and the Church even claims that it can administer saving power without the Bible. When Alec was preparing his Bible class on this topic several months ago, he came across a quote in the Catholic Encyclopedia that said, Tradition interprets scripture, and that it's a more complete expression of the life and teaching of the Church. The section made it clear that the Church interprets scripture in the light of her tradition, so it's obvious which is given the greater authority. Mary reached over the book scattered on the table and picked up her Bible. I'd like to see what the Bible says for itself. You've listened to a fair sampling from Catholic writers. I'd like your response from your understanding of the Bible. What importance does tradition hold next to the written scriptures? I'm rather glad to hear you ask that question, Mary, said Alec. I'll try my best to answer the key points raised by those quotes. Let's start with the belief that the Catholic Church is the mother of the Bible, and that, if it were not for her, non-Catholics would not know about the inspiration of Scripture. This could only be possible if the Bible did not claim inspiration for itself. But Mary, the Bible does many times in both the Old and New Testaments. The inspiration of Scripture certainly does not rest on what any church has claimed for it. All Scripture is inspired by God and can be profitable for teaching, says Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. That's as clear as you could want Scripture to state the matter. And keep in mind, Mary, that when Paul wrote those words, most of what he could then call Scripture was the Old Testament. The Old Testament asserts inspiration just as clearly, continued Alec. King David explained precisely how inspiration worked with him. The Spirit of Yahweh speaks through me. His word is on my tongue. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. Okay, that kind of explanation would indicate that Scripture claims inspiration and authority for itself, commented Mark, who was following in his Bible with Mary. Now, as to the view that the Church is the mother of the Bible, Alec continued, I'm afraid that is never said of Christ's Church in the New Testament. The Scriptures are always described as coming from God, or Christ, to the community of believers. The Bible isn't a gift from the Church itself. In other words, the Church doesn't supply itself with its own revelation. Let's consider, for example, the giving of one particular book of Scripture, the Book of Revelation. Its origin is clearly identified in the first verse of the book. This is the revelation given by God to Jesus Christ, so that He could tell His servants about the things which are now to take place very soon. Revelation 1, verse 1. Well, does this indicate that the Bible came from the church itself? No, God alone is the author. Even after Jesus had been glorified, he had to receive the message from his father, and then reveal it to John, who shared it with the church. What about the view that the church is not the child of Scripture? asked Anne. There are a number of Bible passages that disagree with that. What passages are you thinking of, dear? asked Alec. For example, replied Anne, Peter himself tells the church, your new birth was not from any mortal seed, but from the everlasting word of the living and eternal God. 1 Peter 1 verse 23 If the word of God creates a rebirth in the life of the believer, then God's word is a creative force, being an expression of God himself. Peter's explanation also agrees with a statement in James. We could read it from your Jerusalem Bible. By his own choice he made us his children by the message of the truth. James 1 18 what other message could be understood by James's first-century readers than the message of the New Testament, which is the Gospel? Don't these passages from Peter and James touch on another point made by David McKnight? asked Mark. Both these passages in Peter and James describe the original Gospel message as a living or dynamic force, not a dead letter. First 1 Peter 1.23 But, Mary interrupted her husband, how can we be sure that the written expression of the message is equally alive? Well, the spoken message, said Alec, doesn't mysteriously lose its force because it's written down in print. The words and the message are exactly the same, whether heard or read. Certainty on this comes from Paul himself. He says to Timothy, All scripture is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 Interestingly, the original word for inspired means God-breathed or God-spirited. Therefore, the written message is alive because it is, present tense, God-breathed. And pursued the point a little further. If the power of the written word plays such an essential role in the Christian's rebirth, and if it's God-breathed, then it's very difficult to see how the Catholic Church can be so sure that if necessary it could do entirely without the Bible. Speaking of the importance of the written text, Paul tells Timothy, You have known the Holy Scriptures. From these you can learn the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is how the man who is dedicated to God becomes fully equipped and ready for any good work. 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 and 16. Is the written text essential in Paul's estimate? Unquestionably. It is from these you can learn the wisdom that leads to salvation. That's a very impressive passage, acknowledged Mark. It makes it difficult to suggest that the Bible could ever be done without. That's also why, in our earlier discussions, explained Anne, that we drew your attention to the seriousness of those Church laws which severely limited access to the Bible for anyone who wanted to read it on his own. The Bible is a source of life for the believer. It's unjustified to diminish the supreme importance of Scripture by urging, as O'Brien and other Catholic writers do, that Scripture alone is not a complete or safe guide. In the passage from Timothy, Paul asserts that Scripture is not only safe, but also quite complete. To make the disciple fully equipped and ready for salvation. What about oral tradition then? asked Mark. Our Church believes that because it came before the written record, oral tradition has priority for interpretation. Mark, replied Alec, that frequent claim can be answered by a careful look at the importance Jesus and the New Testament writers gave to the written message. You'll notice, especially in the Acts, that whatever was preached, that seemed new to their listeners, was viewed as a fulfillment of messages previously recorded. Therefore, listeners could always check the oral message against the written record, which was being fulfilled. The written, not the oral, was always the final court of appeal, not the church itself or any extra tradition. ''Prove it,'' demanded Mark with a friendly grin toward Alec. ''That I would like to see demonstrated from the Bible itself.'' ''Very well,'' returned Alec in an eager tone. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 17, and you can see for yourself. Mark and Mary quickly located Acts 17, and then looked to Alec expectantly. Verse 1 tells us that on his journeys, Paul came to the city of Thessalonica, and despite his obvious authority from the Holy Spirit, he delivered his message in the following way. Paul, as usual, introduced himself, and for three consecutive Sabbaths, developed the arguments from Scripture. Verse 2. Notice that Paul, inspired and authoritative as he was, delivered his message of the Good News by arguments developed directly from the Scriptures. He was, as verse 3 says, explaining and proving. But all this was done by establishing his oral message from what was previously written. But I don't understand, said Mark, why didn't Paul just refer to his own apostolic authority alone and require that the Thessalonians accept that? Because if his message was going to be tested by objective proof, then it had to be measured against God's previous written revelation, replied Alec. That touches on what we've previously discussed concerning the importance of testable evidence for any church doctrine or tradition. Paul, as usual, made a genuine bid to open-mindedness, and the evidence was presented to the listeners for the application of their reasoning. Paul's direct, forthright method with an open Bible was the apostolic method, If the Apostles felt compelled to teach in this way, despite their Holy Spirit guidance, how much more should we today?" said Alec. However, our story doesn't end there at Thessalonica, commented Alec. When we slip down to verse 10, Paul arrives in the city of Berea, and again he preached. The record says, here the Jews were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They welcomed the word very readily. Every day they studied the scriptures to check whether it was true. Acts 17 verse 11. Now did you notice why these Bereans were complimented by God? Because they were open-minded, Mary put in. Yes, but what's the scriptural definition of being open-minded here, prompted Alec. Oh, I see, blurted Mark, staring intently at the Bible page in front of him, every day they studied the Scriptures to check whether it was true. Verse 11. And that's what the Bible means by open-mindedness. That's an incredible statement. And they studied every day, mused Mary. But why were they studying? Alec urged further. Mark returned to his Bible page. Well, to check whether it was true. To check the Apostle Paul's message. Mark seemed to stumble over his own reply as he began to grasp the point. It's saying that Paul's own preaching, the oral message, was checked out by these unconverted Jews to decide whether Paul was right and it was checked by the Bereans, searching completely on their own to discover whether Paul's message squared with the scriptures, tested by the written text alone. Mark's eyes lit up. I've never seen anything like this before. These Bereans obviously weren't accused of being blind, stubborn, or disrespectful to Paul's authority. Paul is certainly not indignant at being so scrupulously checked against the written record. And this is being an open-minded seeker. Mark exclaimed, as his excitement increased. You see, Mark and Mary, this is the true apostolic way. No individual or church is above this kind of cross-examination, even by the untrained, like the Bereans. Notice these people didn't need Paul to go home with them and guide them in their interpretation. Paul trusted the clarity and power of scriptures to speak for itself. And the Bereans weren't using the scriptures with a church commentary in the margin, admitted Mark. Whatever traditions the Jews might have had, they didn't teach a crucified Messiah, which was the subject of Paul's preaching. The scriptures alone had to be used to do the testing. That's a startling contrast to the approach of my own church. Alec then added, An oral message, or any other tradition, is not the judge for interpreting the Bible. If Paul's inspired message was tested by the written record, even when Paul was there in person... How much more should creeds or traditions expressed after the age of the Apostles be tested? Mark looked away from his Bible and then scratched his head as if he was urging his thoughts. He then turned toward Alec and Anne. This isn't the end of the matter, of course. For me, this discussion is just beginning, I've still a number of unanswered questions, the claims for papal authority we've already touched on when we looked at John 14, but we haven't done justice to that topic yet and after today's discussion about tradition, I'd like to look at the seven sacraments. Before we do, however, I've got to do some thinking and a bit of checking on what we've already covered. Mary interrupted. Mark, don't forget that you've got that business trip out west coming up. Perhaps we should hold off on any further get-togethers until you're back. That's fine with us, assured Anne, looking first to Alec and then to Mark. Let's leave it for a while if you wish. Besides, put in Alec with a chuckle, you've got that lawn to cut that you left today. Mark and Mary laughed at Alec's reminder, and as they made ready to leave, Mark paused in the hallway. When we were driving from their funeral, you mentioned that seeking truth is like a man seeking for treasure. I can see now that Mary
1: and I have more looking to do before our search is complete. Chapter 5.
0: The Church's One Foundation A Business Trip "'Mary, have you phoned the travel agency to confirm my flight yet?' asked Mark as he shuffled a stack of business papers on his desk. "'The flight leaves early Monday morning.' "'Yes, I have. It's been confirmed,' replied Mary. "'That should give you plenty of time to go over points from last week's discussion with Anne and Alec.' "'Well, I have a bit of paperwork to do on the way out,' said Mark, "'but I'm going to bring along those booklets from the Knights of Columbus. They're short and fairly easy to read on a flight. "'By the way, Mark, I mentioned your trip to Anne Adams.' She said she and Alec have a friend who regularly travels out west, and explained that he's a member of their church and a keen Bible student. I gave her your flight date, and she's going to pass it on to their friend and tell him that we've been in discussion with them. I think she said his name is John. That would be great if we crossed paths, said Mark. On Monday morning, Mary drove Mark to the airport. After he was checked through, Mark began thinking about how he wanted to use his time on the flight. He was looking forward to the opportunity to review the points that he had been considering with Alec. As the jet lifted from the runway, Mark peered out the oval window. In looking back, he noticed that the passenger beside him was busy unloading his briefcase. As the jet reached altitude and leveled off, the stewardess began taking orders for breakfast. Mark drew out a sheaf of business reports from his case and set to work. When the stewardess began serving Mark's row, he looked past his fellow passenger and noticed for the first time that he had been reading the Bible. Clear view of Lake Huron, commented the passenger as he peered out the window. Yes, I wish I had more time to enjoy it, said Mark, catching another glance of the Bible and the typed sheets bouncing on his lap. Are you a minister? inquired Mark, finally surrendering to curiosity. Oh, no, he answered, just a student of this wonderful book. I see. Then you are a kind of speaker? I noticed your typed sheets, asked Mark. His companion began to notice Mark's interest and decided to coax it a little further. Yes, in a way, was the reply. Belong to a rather small community that has a great respect for this book, and like the Christians of the first century, we don't have a paid clergy. Teaching responsibilities are shared by various lay members like myself. Mark felt an urge to pursue the point along a particular path, but he was trying to remind himself that he had work to do. The conversation ended for a moment as both men started their breakfast. Finally, Mark ventured a further comment You referred to the first century Christians. Say, before I go further, I haven't got your name. The gentleman extended his hand with a friendly smile and said, John, John Westwood. And yours? Mark Moore. It suddenly occurred to Mark that this John Westwood was the friend that Anne Adams had talked about to Mary. As Mark shook hands, he said, You must be a friend of Alec and Ann Adams. They mentioned that they know someone who travels out west regularly. Mr. Westwood replied, Oh, yes, Anne phoned about that just last night. Well, this is a great coincidence. Mark returned to his question, you referred to the first century Christians. Don't you think the Bible teaches that people like Peter or Paul had the right to be paid for their ministry? Well, I don't think it would have been a question of rights. replied John. The apostles did receive voluntary support at times from those with whom they worked, but in several of his letters, Paul reminds his readers of how rarely he actually took advantage of this first Corinthians nine verse twelve to fifteen in fact. Peter himself issued a very strong warning against being employed as a preacher for material gain. 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Mark let this point pass and asked, Ah, John, speaking of Peter, do you believe that Peter held any kind of privileged position among the apostles? No, I don't believe the scriptures indicate that, replied John slowly. Then what about the evidence from, say, church tradition? asked Mark. What tradition are you referring to? returned John. Turning more directly toward Mr. Westwood, Mark answered, "'Such as the early church fathers or councils.'" John stirred in his seat, and placing his Bible in one hand, he pointed toward it and said, "'I don't believe, Mark, that any tradition independent of Scripture is inspired teaching. Perhaps you realize that giving importance to the word tradition is out of step with the way tradition is usually referred to in the Bible.'" "'I'm not sure I understand what you mean,' interrupted Mark. "'Well,' The word tradition is only used 13 times in most Bibles. All of the occurrences are located in the New Testament, and of the total, 11 refer to tradition in a negative sense. What do you mean? asked Mark. 11 of the 13 references are speaking of Jewish traditions outside of Scripture, said John. Jesus insisted on a definite contrast between tradition and the word of God. In one chapter alone, this sharp distinction is made five times. Mark 7, verses 3, 5, 8, 9, and 13, in the course of Jesus' remarks. In all of Jesus' statements about tradition, he never once even came close to equating tradition with scripture. For years, the Jews had mistakenly believed that traditions were useful, even authoritative, to interpret scripture. Jesus' view was that these destroyed the original meaning of God's message in order to serve man's interests or beliefs. Matthew 15, verse 6 in the other two references to tradition, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 15 and 3 verse 6, Paul speaks of tradition as the substance of his and other apostles' preaching. There isn't one New Testament scripture, Mark, that refers to any tradition besides that which was delivered directly by the apostles. This tune sounds rather familiar, thought Mark, and remembered his discussions with Alec Adams. Would you write those passages down for me before we leave the plane? asked Mark. Sure, be glad to, agreed John. Just to add a further thought to this, Mark, appealing to the traditions of the so-called Early Fathers, or of the Church Councils, is really not an appeal that the common man can easily check for himself. To search for such traditions one has to examine the writings of the so-called Fathers, and many canons of the Councils, and the decrees of the Popes. That's a mammoth undertaking for anyone who wishes to objectively search for himself. Interpretations often vary according to the father or counsel that may be consulted. And how does one decide who is to be trusted when the sources differ? I think you may be exaggerating the difficulties, suggested Mark. Am I? Mr. Westwood raised his eyebrows as he spoke. When Abbe Minya made his collection of these sources for the Catholic Church some years ago, the writings of the Latin Fathers filled 222 thick volumes, the Greek 167, That just covered the so-called fathers. If one wanted the proceedings of councils, the decrees of popes, etc., another set of encyclopedias would have to be consulted. To appeal to these traditions, as you call them, is to appeal to sources beyond the reach of the ordinary inquirer, without a doubt. It also demands reliance on the judgments of others as to which father is dependable when disagreements arise. And such disagreements were not infrequent. But, like the question of Peter's authority, I understand that the Church attempts to rest its decisions on what the Fathers or Councils spoke unanimously, or at least what the majority agree on, urged Mark. Faith in the majority is hardly a sound basis for spiritual judgment. It was the majority of Israel and her learned scholars that rejected Christ's simple teaching, replied John firmly. Mark looked at his watch and felt his conscience prick as he glanced at the papers in his case. He reached for one of his church booklets the Papacy, Expression of God's Love, and turned to the section that quoted support from the Church Fathers for the supremacy of the bishops of Rome. Passing it to John, he said, You you seem a little familiar with some of these early writings and councils. Would you like to take a look at these quotations from the early fathers? I've got some work to finish, but when I'm through, perhaps you could give me your response. I would be quite willing to do that, complied Mr. Westwood. Was Peter a Pope? When Mark had completed his work, he looked over to his fellow passenger and saw that he had made his way through most of the little booklet. Well, what's your reaction? Mark asked eagerly. After a moment to collect his thoughts, John began, I don't feel that the real answer to the claims of this booklet for Peter's supremacy lies within these quotes from the so-called fathers. The quote from Jerome, 343-420 to A.D. reads, As I follow no leader save Christ, so I communicated with none other but your blessedness, that is, with the chair of Peter, for this, I know, is the rock on which the church is built. A quote is given from Augustine, 354-430 to 430 AD, apparently referring to Rome, in which the ruling power of the apostolic see has always flourished. Jerome and Augustine are quoted, but neither quotation really serves the purpose of your booklet, Mark. We might ask, do these two writers make clear statements that the Bishop of Rome Was recognized as the supreme authority over all the Christian community in their day? And if so, did they base this on scriptures such as Matthew 16? Well, to be fair, the quotes from these writers in this booklet didn't really offer much direct statements, and they don't refer to Matthew 16, agreed Mark, as he checked the booklet page. In fact, John continued, I know from my own limited reading of Jerome, that he went on record as saying that all bishops, whether in Rome, Alexandria, or Constantinople, were of the same worth and priesthood. The reference to Augustine is even more surprising, Mark, for some of Augustine's writings indicate the very opposite of what your booklet is suggesting. Augustine was Bishop of Hippo in Africa in the 5th century. In one of his letters, number 162, he criticized some other leaders for appealing to a Roman bishop to support them in a local dispute. Augustine suggested that the Roman bishop in question was wrongly interfering with the authority of 70 others. Perhaps I see what you mean when you say that it's difficult at times to obtain agreement or clear statements from some of these early writings, Mark added thoughtfully. The entire context of a quotation and other writings of such authors are usually not questioned by the casual reader, continued John. The point could be emphasized in another way. At the time when the infallibility of the Pope was formally settled in 1870, two outstanding Catholic historians, Lord Acton and Dollinger, Along with Archbishop Kenrick of the United States, submitted summaries for the Council demonstrating how many of the early Church Fathers did not apply passages like Matthew 16, verse 18, to the Roman bishops as Peter's successors. Really? exclaimed Mark with heightened interest. And to bring the point back to your booklet's reference to the Fathers, these Catholic historians, Acton and Dollinger, both made the point that the majority of the early Fathers, they cited 68 out of 85, understood the rock of Peter's confession in Matthew 16:18 as referring either to Peter's own confession of faith or to Christ himself. Christ would build his church upon the truth confessed by Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark turned to Matthew 16 verses 18 and 19 in his Bible. John noted where Mark was reading and looked up the passage and waited for Mark's comment. Jesus' words to Peter according to my Catholic Bible reads, You are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the underworld can never hold out against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Mark thought a moment, and then remarked, Doesn't that suggest to you that here Peter is being given a unique privilege and authority over the other apostles? John answered, Well, let's look at the Lord's words in the context of the passage. Jesus' statement here is in response to Peter's reply to the Lord's earlier question in verse 13. How does it read in your Bible, Mark? Mark read, He put this question to his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And verse 16 reads, Simon Peter spoke up, You are the Christ, he said, the Son of the living God. Therefore, John continued, Peter's remark that Jesus is the Christ must have some connection with Jesus' later comment to Peter about the rock upon which he would build the church. What connection do you suggest it has? asked Mark. Well, in the context of this discussion between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus asked the twelve who the people thought he was. Verse 14 lists the very answers of which the disciples were aware. Then Jesus returns the focus to himself and presses the disciples for their reply. But you, he said, who do you say I am? Peter replied correctly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 16. Now Mark, for Jesus to then turn to Peter and tell him that he, Peter, deserves to be exalted as the church's foundation, would be to completely steer away from the aim of Jesus' leading questions. Are you saying that to stress Peter's supremacy at that point in Christ's discussion would have been out of place with what Jesus was trying to explain about himself? Mark questioned? Yes, Mark. Jesus was disturbed by the way others were failing to recognize his sonship. He wanted to clarify his importance as God's son at least in the minds of his own disciples. But to turn from this, his central concern, just as Peter was correctly stating it, and begin to stress Peter's exalted importance, is entirely out of place. It would be out of place, I mean, even if the Catholic view of Peter is correct, which I don't believe it is. You are saying, if I follow, that it would have taken away from Jesus' objective to emphasize anything about Peter's importance at that particular point. Is that it? asked Mark. Yes, to emphasize Peter's or any of the apostles' importance at that point in his remarks would have been entirely irrelevant for Jesus when he was trying to highlight his own importance, added John. Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ was the foundation that the disciples had to get clear in their minds, and Jesus could only be the foundation rock if he was in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'll need more evidence than just this point about the aim of Jesus' discussion, Mark admitted. Do you see anything else in this chapter, John, that suggests Jesus was not exalting Peter in any way? Yes, replied John. In the original language of Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus made a difference between the word he used to name Peter, which means rock, and the rock on which he built his church. If as the Catholic Church contends, Peter himself was the rock on which Christ was to build his church, why didn't Jesus use the same word to describe Peter and the rock of the church's foundation? Mark seemed puzzled. You're saying that Peter's name means rock, but it's not the same word as the rock on which Christ built his church? Well, you'll need to be a little more detailed in order to prove to me that the two words are different, and that this shows Peter was not being exalted by Christ in some special way. All right, agreed John. He bent over Mark's Bible to read the footnote at the bottom of the page. Mark, what does your Bible footnote say about the original word for Peter's name? Mark studied the note. It says the Greek word for Peter's name is Petros, but isn't Petros the word Jesus used to describe the church's rock foundation? Sorry, that's not the case, replied John. Mark appeared slightly crestfallen. What's the difference, then? Petros is the original Greek word for Peter. What's the word for the rock on which Jesus will build his church? Asked Mark earnestly. That word rock is Petra, the feminine form, whereas Petros is masculine. The difference is not insignificant, as Petra is used to describe a fixed rock or boulder, obviously the type on which God's true church would be built. However, Petros, the word for Peter's name, usually describes a small, movable stone. If you doubt this distinction, I could write down for you a number of reliable authorities that explain the difference between the two words. Petra, the rock on which Christ builds his church, must refer to something other than Peter himself or Petros, Peter's name, would simply have been repeated. Well then, what is Petro referring to? asked Mark. Christ, affirmed John. Every time it is used to describe a person, it refers to Jesus. For example, let's turn up 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 4. Once Mark located it, John read, Our fathers were all guided by a cloud above them, and how they all passed through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses, and all drank the same spiritual drink since they all drank from that spiritual rock, Petra, that followed them as they went. And that rock, Petra, was Christ. Earlier, John turned the Bible back a few pages. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, verse 11, Paul says, For the foundation, nobody can lay any other than the one that has already been laid, that is, Jesus Christ. Mark was perplexed as he looked away from his Bible. Those passages seem to prove that Jesus is the rock of the true church. If I understand that last passage, Paul forbids us to consider anyone else even sharing that position with Jesus. John, it would be even more impressive to me, as a Catholic, if you could show me a passage in which Peter himself applied the special word Petra, or rock, to Jesus. Good challenge, returned John, as he leaned over Mark's Bible and thumbed toward Peter's epistles. Here we are, First Peter 2, verse 6. First, the Apostle explains, as Scripture says, See now, I lay in Zion a precious cornerstone, and the man who rests his trust on it will not be disappointed. Then verses 7 and 8 read, The stone rejected by the builders has proved to be the keystone, a stone to stumble over, a rock, Petra, to bring men down. By looking back to verse 5, we can see that this rejected cornerstone, or rock, to bring men down is definitely Jesus and this is further confirmed when we find that Peter referred to this rejected stone in his speech shortly after Pentecost. This is the stone rejected by you the builders, but which has proved to be the keystone. Acts 4 verse 11 If I might say, Mark, it is ignoring the obvious to suggest that anyone other than Christ is the immovable rock or foundation of God's church. Peter couldn't possibly fit that description himself, for in Matthew 16, just after Jesus' comment about the rock, Peter shows his unsteadiness by interfering with Jesus' mission. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are an obstacle in my path, because the way you think is not God's way, but man's. Matthew 16, verse 23. That phrase, obstacle in my path, is really one word in the original, and, in fact, the Catholic New Testament by Knox, renders the phrase, I've written in my Bible margin here, You are a stone in my path. Then Peter could hardly be the immovable stone referred to in Matthew 16, verse 18, Mark exclaimed in bewilderment. That gives emphasis to your point that Peter was deliberately called a movable stone. I can see now how Peter's behavior showed it. He was a contrast to Jesus, the immovable foundation. In identifying Jesus as God's son, Peter was confessing who the church's foundation truly is. Exactly, Mark. It explains why Jesus made such a curious play on the two words for rock. Peter's weakness and limitations are set in sharp contrast to the Lord's unshakable strength. Later in the Gospels, he is shown to deny Christ three times. Matthew 26, verse 75. Again, even later in Peter's life, Paul had to firmly rebuke Peter's indecisiveness when it involved a basic question of doctrine and behavior. We could read it in your Jerusalem Bible here, Mark. When Cephas equals Peter in Aramaic, on 1, verses 40 and 42, came to Antioch, however, I, Paul, opposed him to his face, since he was manifestly in the wrong, when I saw they were not respecting the true meaning of the good news. I said to Cephas, Galatians 2, verses 11 and 14, but that's a very basic error on Peter's part, said Mark. Peter was an error on an issue that contradicted the true meaning of the good news. I have believed that Peter and the ruling office of the Church would be guided by the Holy Spirit forever, as John 14, verse 16 says, and that they would be reminded and instructed in everything, John 14, 26. That as a spirit of truth, the Advocate would guide Peter and his successors into complete truth, as Jesus said in John 16, verse 13. I've discussed those passages already with Alec and Anne Adams, and he tried to show me that the Catholic Church's application of those passages was very questionable especially regarding Peter's primacy. Now I can see even more clearly why Alec made those points. Paul's rebuke of Peter just doesn't fit with the way my church applies those passages in John's Gospel. Well, Peter certainly showed that he was a movable stone or Petros on that occasion, Mark. When Paul rebuked Peter, it was after Peter had received a vision explaining the very point he erred on, Acts 10. It therefore says very little for the view that Peter was Prince of the Apostles, as your booklet asserts or that Peter was an immovable, rock-like shepherd for the community. All right, John, you've now raised something else I'm puzzled about from that passage in Galatians 2. How is it that Paul is correcting Peter? I've always believed that Peter was the authoritative voice after Jesus left, the Prince of the Apostles. Well, the incident between Paul and Peter here in Galatians certainly shows otherwise, doesn't it? You know, it's interesting, Mark, that in that booklet you gave me to read, The Papacy, Expression of God's Love, Peter is described by the title, Prince, on page 12. The booklet mentions the incident between Paul and Peter that we've just looked at, and dismisses it as merely a personal failing on Peter's part. It was that alright, but this ignores the basic issues that were at stake. How could Peter's failure in not respecting the true meaning of the good news, Galatians 2 verse 14, be anything other than a failure in Christian faith and morals? These are the very principles that any Pope or Prince of the Apostles would be expected to demonstrate by both precept and example. If Paul had a firm grip on the issues and he was Peter's spiritual inferior, then why doesn't Peter understand with his additional blessing of the Holy Spirit? To me, Mark, the Catholic doctrine of Peter's lordship fails at a crucial application, leadership and understanding when it is needed to guide the flock. Paul demonstrates it, Peter shrinks back in weakness. If Peter had a special key, it somehow eluded him, just when he would have used it, if the Catholic doctrine is correct. Considering Paul's rebuke of Peter, it is a mishandling of facts for your booklet to suggest on page 12. The relationship between Paul and Peter, as seen in the Acts, leaves little doubt about Peter's acceptance by the early Christians as Prince of the Apostles and Vicar of Christ. On this point, the booklet goes on to say that the witness of the Acts is especially noteworthy. Then follows a list of incidents from the Acts that apparently demonstrate Peter's prominence over all the apostles, especially Paul. Perhaps those passages suggest that Peter was important, but not supreme? wondered Mark out loud. John continued, Did you notice this, Mark? he pointed to the booklet page, that we are going to be given proof from Peter's relationship with Paul, as well as with the other apostles, that Peter owned great prominence over all but the passages offered from the Acts cover chapters 1 to 12, and then chapter 15. What's your point? asked Mark. Perhaps many others reading this aren't aware of what is being referred to either, added John. It's important to know these passages in testing these claims. If these passages are proof in part for Peter's superiority over Paul, then we would expect a consideration of incidents where Peter and Paul were both present, and that on such occasions Peter is shown to have greater prominence, or better yet, Paul described as yielding to Peter's authority. Now a careful check of all these passages reveals the following. First, all the passages cited from Acts 1 to 9 are totally irrelevant to prove anything about Peter's relationship to Paul as a fellow apostle. Paul isn't even converted until Acts chapter 9, three-quarters through your booklet's list of supporting passages. How then can incidents from Acts 1 to 9 prove anything about Peter's superiority over Paul? Following Paul's conversion, he only visited Peter's region once during the next 14 years, and that only during a 15-day visit. You can check this out for yourself, as Paul's life is outlined by himself in Galatians 1 verses 16-24 to Galatians 2 verse 1. And then, when Peter does meet Paul, after 14 years, the passage describes the roles of both men. I, Paul, had been commissioned to preach the good news to the uncircumcised, meaning the Gentiles just as Peter had been commissioned to preach it to the circumcised, that is, the Jews. Galatians 2 verse 7. Would it seem that there is any indication of Peter's superiority from that statement, Mark? No, I guess not. It seems their roles were evenly divided. It would seem to imply that Paul's commission was just as important as Peter's. If Peter was appointed to the circumcision, I take it that he was stationed mainly in the area of Judea or Jerusalem. Isn't that what Galatians 1 verse 18 indicates? I would agree, said John. Now when Paul describes the apostolic approval for his work in this chapter, he goes on to say, So James, Cephas, that is Peter, and John, these leaders, these pillars, shook hands with Barnabas and me as a sign of partnership. Galatians 2 verse 9 You know, that statement is contrary to another claim attempted earlier in your booklet, Mark. On page 8 it says, Read the scriptures, and see how his name, Peter, invariably appears first in the listing of the apostles. The supporting passages given in your booklet are both taken from the Gospels, before Paul was called. But in Galatians 2, when Paul is part of the community and other apostles are present, James is listed before Peter, or Cephas, as he could be called. Why would this be if Peter was Prince of the Apostles? James is later described in this same chapter as the one from whom disciples were sent to Antioch, Galatians 2, verse 12. The Catholic New American Bible and the King James make this point even more clearly, that these disciples were sent from James. James is listed first, and it is from him that disciples are dispatched to Paul's area in Antioch. This explains why, when Peter was released from prison, Peter told his bewildered colleagues, Tell James and the other brothers. Acts 12, verse 17. Later, when Paul completed his third journey, he returned to Jerusalem. And the Acts records, On our arrival in Jerusalem, the brothers gave us a very warm welcome. The next day, Paul went with us to visit James. Acts 21, verses 17-18. to Peter receives no special mention. Those quotations are astounding, John. And James resided for most of the time exactly in the same area or city as the Apostle Peter. See Galatians 1, verse 18. I've never seen that pattern revealed before. It would seem that even James had greater prominence than Peter as time went on. The key point, Mark, is that your booklet calls on the book of Acts to support the superiority of Peter's position, and yet, when carefully examined, it seems to suggest the contrary. Did you realize, Mark, that Peter's name doesn't even appear again in the Acts after chapter 15 verse 7? The remaining half of the book is centered entirely around the work of the Apostle Paul. As Paul continued his pastoral work, his writings included 14 New Testament books, compared to two short epistles by the Apostle Peter. Whose pastoral work, therefore, receives the greatest attention by God Himself in the composing of the New Testament, Peter or Paul? The answer is so obvious that it makes any claims for Peter's superiority almost absurd, especially in view of this assertion on page 13 of your booklet. He, Peter, acts as a president of the so-called Council of Jerusalem Acts 15 verses 6 to 12 the cumulative effect of reading the first 15 chapters of Acts is one of seeing Peter as the very heart of the early church the key person in its life the ultimate decision maker now why does the booklet specify just the first 15 chapters of the book because Peter completely drops out of sight after chapter 15 verse 7 a point that is lost is that Paul's rebuke of Peter was near the time of this Jerusalem council when Peter was last heard of in the Acts. In other words, very close to the last mention of Peter, he is strongly rebuked by Paul. Then the balance of the book of Acts focuses entirely on Paul's work. At the same time, according to Galatians 2, Peter visits Paul, but is described second next to James in the listing. How then, in this last view of Peter, could it be claimed that he was the very heart of the early church, the ultimate decision-maker? John, apart from this last description of Peter in the Acts, is there also proof in the first part of Acts that Peter wasn't the supreme decision-maker? That's where my booklet lays most of its stress in using the Acts. Indeed, there is, replied John, as early as Acts 8, when the leaders in Jerusalem heard that Samaria was responding to the Gospel, it was decided to seek a first-hand account. Now if Peter was the prince, or ultimate decision-maker, we should expect that such a decision would be given under his leadership but is that what we find? Here in Acts 8 verse 14 it states, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Peter's importance here is obvious, but who sends whom? The claims of the Catholic Church contradict a basic principle laid down by Jesus. The one sent is not greater than the one who sends him. I tell you most solemnly, no messenger is greater than the man who sent him. John 13, verse 16. As the King James renders it in my Bible, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If Peter was sent as a fact-finder by other members of the Jerusalem church, he certainly isn't prince over them, nor their decision-maker. John, what about the booklet's claim that Peter was president of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15? If that's so, we certainly have one example of Peter acting as the leader. Let's open your Bible, Mark. John began, and we'll take a close look. Nowhere in Acts 15 does it say that Peter or anyone held the role of president. That's pure assumption. Notice the council was held in Jerusalem, Peter's own area, Acts 15 verse 2, but the record doesn't say it was called by him. The apostles and elders met to look into the matter, 15 verse 6. Then it was only after the discussion had gone on a long time, verse 7, that Peter rose to speak. But did Peter have the last word? as authoritative prince? No. Following Peter, Paul and Barnabas spoke, verse twelve. And who had the last word? I'm just guessing, was it James? Yes, it was James. He had the final word. Notice how the record set James's position into some prominence. And when they, Paul and Barnabas, concluded their presentation, James spoke up. My brothers, he said, listen to me. Acts fifteen verse thirteen. As James concluded his speech, your Jerusalem Bible captures the emphasis. I, James, rule then that, verse 19. And then follows James's recommendation. Just as soon as James's speech was over, the record says, Then the apostles and elders decided, verse 22. When the council's letter is issued, it is sent with no special greeting or even mention of Peter, simply from the apostles and elders, your brothers, verse 23. Here we have the only description of a church council in the New Testament, and if anyone seemed to hold extra influence, it was James and not Peter. Mark, I don't think this kind of evidence can be stressed too much in view of the Catholic claims of supremacy for Peter. The real support for the Catholic doctrine must be based on how the early church conducted itself. This is the only scriptural way to test our interpretation of passages like Matthew 16 verse 18. James and Peter were, for a long while, within the same city, and yet James clearly obtained more importance as time went on. Later, when Paul came into the community, his leadership became unequaled. It is quite obvious from his statement in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 11, we'll read it from your Jerusalem Bible here, There is not a thing these arch-apostles have that I do not have as well. The King James Version renders it, For in nothing I am behind the very chiefest apostles. How can my church, then, ever set Peter over Paul in view of that all-inclusive statement by Paul? queried Mark with a little anxiety. Only by claiming that she has a special authority to interpret Peter's role, or by calling on its church traditions to buttress the obvious evidence to the contrary in the New Testament, answered John. What about the New Testament references to Peter's leadership in Rome? continued Mark. What references, Mark? The Catholic Church can't refer to one passage in the New Testament to prove that Peter even went to Rome. The New Testament makes no mention of any Roman bishop, which robs these claims of any Bible support for Peter being the first bishop of Rome. Consequently, there isn't any mention either of Peter having successors to his alleged pontificate. All of this can be checked on your own, Mark, by looking up the words Peter or Rome in a Bible concordance. Mark leaned back into his chair for a moment and slowly leaped through the booklet pages. Leaning forward again, looking at John, he said, Well, we've looked at the main passages used by the Church to establish Peter's primacy. Checked how Peter is described by others as he worked with them among the early believers. John, are there any direct statements from Peter himself that indicate how he understood his position in the early Church? John paused for a moment before answering. Let's see, the Catholic Church regards Peter as Prince of the Apostles. Some popes have described their position as that of a spiritual monarch, accepting the title, My Lord the Pope, and accepting subjects as bowing in homage before the papal throne. Of course, if the pope is Jesus' vicar, or prince, perhaps such veneration would be due. But in two passages spoken by Peter himself, there is proof that Peter would have loathed that special regard. When Peter met the Gentile convert Cornelius, the Acts records if we turn to it here. As Peter entered, Cornelius went to meet him, dropped to his knees before him, and bowed low. Peter said as he helped him to his feet, Stand up, I am only a man after all. Acts 10, verse 25 and 26. Later in his life, Peter wrote this in his own epistle. I have it open here in my King James Version. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5, verse 3. From his address at the beginning of this same chapter, it's obvious how Peter viewed himself in relation to his fellow believers. I have something to tell your elders. I am an elder myself. 1 Peter 5 verse 1 If Peter was an elevated prince of the apostles, the vicar of Christ, the Church's ultimate decision-maker, he definitely could not, without false modesty, call himself merely a fellow elder. Peter forbade others to assume a position of lordship, as he would have rejected any veneration of himself. These statements by Peter were based on Jesus' warning to all the apostles against any assuming a position of lordship. If you turn it up, Mark, it's found in Luke 22, verse 24. Mark turned to Luke and read, A dispute also arose between them about which should be reckoned the greatest. Say, just a minute, John, Mark piped in, why would the dispute have ever arisen if the Lord's comment in Matthew 16 had already given Peter authority over the twelve? Well, that's a good question, Mark. I hadn't thought of that point myself, but it certainly is supported by Jesus in Luke 22. He said to them, Among pagans it is the kings who lord it over them. This must not happen with you. No, the greatest among you must behave as if he were the youngest, the leader as if he were the one who serves. Verses 25 and 26 The true disciples of Jesus are to totally reject any posture of prince or lord over others. Jesus compares such arrogance to earthly, not spiritual leaders. Clearly Peter had this in mind when he spoke to the shepherds of the flock. My, that certainly hasn't been the posture of a good many Catholic popes through the ages, mused Mark. For many years our popes commanded armies and even rivaled the kings of Europe. At times they even tried to dethrone monarchs, as I've read from history books. Ladies and gentlemen, before we reach Vancouver Airport, we'll be serving a light lunch. Please let down your lunch tables. The intercom broke into Mark and John's conversation. Both gentlemen looked at their watches with surprise. As they both ate their lunches, they continued in conversation until John said, Most of this trip is already over, Mark. Doesn't the time go when you're engrossed in a good conversation? Yes, I've really got a lot out of this discussion, John. It's a helpful addition to what I've been wrestling with over the past few weeks. I can see that we're not going to have much time left after lunch. Can I just ask, to come full circle in all this, in Matthew 16... Peter was promised the keys to bind and loose things in heaven and earth, Matthew 16, verse 19. From what we've already looked at, Peter certainly isn't given any prominence over James or Paul. He wasn't to be Lord over any of the others. So could it be that these keys also were given to James and the other apostles? Otherwise, they would have related differently to Peter than what we've seen. I believe that's a fair conclusion, Mark. And, believe it or not, the proof for that is found only two chapters beyond the promises to the keys to Peter in Matthew 16. Here it is in Matthew 18. Mark was already beginning to shake his head with the appearance of disbelief. In verse 1, we see that Jesus is confronted by the question we considered in Luke, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus continues to give his answers to the twelve, down to verse 18, where he tells them all, I tell you solemnly, whatever you, the twelve, bind on earth, shall be considered bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be considered loosed in heaven. No, the keys to bind or loose were not the exclusive privilege of Peter and his supposed successors. The keys were given to all the twelve. Understanding of this sharing of the keys relates to what Jesus meant when He commanded Peter to strengthen his brethren, in Luke 22, verse 32. Because the other apostles also held the authority to bind and loose in their service to others, the same word in Luke 22, strengthen, was used by Paul to describe his own ministering Romans 1, verse 11. Timothy was also told to keep his brethren strong in 1 Thessalonians 3.2. The same principle of shared authority also explains what Jesus meant when he told Peter to look after my sheep in John 21.16. You mean to say, John, interrupted Mark, that this feeding of the church was not a unique commission to Peter? Any more than was the privilege of the keys? Yes, exactly. As we have seen, Peter commanded others to feed God's sheep when he cautioned against being a lord over the flock. He described himself only as a fellow elder in this responsibility to feed. 1 Peter 5, verse 1 to 3. Likewise, Paul shared this duty of feeding. In fact, he used the very same Greek word for feed that Jesus used when telling Peter to feed his sheep in John 21. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock, Of which the Holy Spirit hath made you, elders of Ephesus, verse 17, the overseers to feed, as in John 21, the church of God, Acts 20, verse 28. Well, John, that provides a rather persuasive summary to all we've covered since we began in Matthew 16. I can see the fasten your seatbelt sign is flashing. Guess we're getting close to landing. Say, I have business to do until Wednesday. Is there any way we could get together by midweek? I don't know anyone in Vancouver. I'd be delighted. "'This is the best conversation I've ever had on one of these flights,' John replied. "'I'll be at the Bayshore Inn near Stanley Park,' said Mark. "'If you give me your phone number, I'll give you a ring by Tuesday night.' As the plane braked on the Vancouver runway, John handed Mark his phone number, and the two men shook hands enthusiastically. "'I've been told that seeking the truth is like searching for treasure. I really didn't expect to be digging out here in British Columbia,' said Mark lightheartedly. "'Well,' John quipped, "'gold was once found in the Fraser River not far from here, Mark.' Perhaps you'll find a few nuggets while you're here in Vancouver. Chapter 6. An Invitation Lunch Together Mark spent the early part of the week working on his business commitments. He tried to dispense with these as quickly as possible, in order to reserve some time for a meeting with his new acquaintance, John Westwood. By Thursday Mark had completed most of his business affairs, and decided to phone John. During their telephone conversation, they agreed to meet in the city for lunch that afternoon. Here's the restaurant coming up now, John announced, as the two men strolled down the sidewalk through Vancouver's business section. When they entered the restaurant, John paused for a moment to purchase a newspaper. As they sat down and waited for a menu, John spread out the Vancouver sun across the table. While turning the pages, he explained to Mark, Just thought I would try to spot an ad that I'm interested in. My church is holding a public lecture this evening, and I thought that I would show it to you. "'Ah, here it is.' Turning the paper around toward Mark, he nudged it across the table, and then pointed in the direction of the ad. Mark read it with interest. Immortality of the Soul. astray from Bible teaching. Lecture at Fraser Auditorium, UBC Campus. Thursday, May 20th, 7 p.m. No collection. All welcome. "'Well, that sounds rather challenging,' Mark commented in a guarded tone. "'Are you planning on going, John?' Yes, I hope to, Mark. Does it interest you at all? Mark replied, I guess we didn't cover that subject when we were talking on the plane. Ah, how about filling me in a little about your views on this? The title seems to be challenging the belief that man has an immortal soul, or have I misunderstood? No, responded John, looking directly at Mark. You have it right. The lecture will probably consider the biblical evidence against the notion of man having an immortal soul, and present the Bible's own definition of man's nature, And when immortality will be given in the future." Mark's face became slightly flushed. John, he asked stiffly, are you suggesting that the most common conviction of Christendom is not based on Bible teaching? I really can't swallow that. Why, that fundamental belief has been held by the majority for centuries. No question about that last point, Mark, but to be fair, the length of time that a belief has been held, and the number of those who hold it, does not prove the correctness of any doctrine. Take Buddhism, for example. It began even before the birth of Christ, but it has teachings that both of us would reject. And for the number of followers, Buddhism would easily have more adherence than Catholicism, but that doesn't prove that its beliefs are right. The soul and the sacraments The waitress came to their table, and the two men placed their lunch orders. You see, belief in the immortality of the soul is the underlying foundation of the seven sacraments of my church. John looked puzzled how's that again, Mark? Well, as Roman Catholics, we believe that man's immortal soul is an essential part of his being. It's the spiritual principle within man, the part of man that is open or receptive to God's direct influence, which we would call God's grace. I see, said John, but what's the link with the seven sacraments? Each of the sacraments, when administered by the Church, produces grace in the soul. We understand this sanctifying grace to be the giving of supernatural energy or power to man's soul. To deny the immortality of the soul, John, is to deny the whole function of the sacraments, and with them the Catholic understanding of the operation of grace. Mark brightened as he noticed John's interest. I can't be detailed here, but Catholics believe that Christ instituted seven sacraments or visible signs which were to signify the giving of sanctifying supernatural grace to the soul. Catholics often describe these as basic steps in a person's life. When a child is born, it is baptized in order to cleanse its soul from original sin, so that he or she becomes a child of God and an heir of heaven. Baptism infuses into the soul the Christian virtues, which we describe as faith, hope, love, justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. And those virtues are actually infused into the soul, repeated John? Yes, affirmed Mark. And when a child reaches the age of reason, it is then given confirmation. By this sacrament, the child's soul receives the Holy Ghost, to make him a perfect Christian and soldier of Christ. At the end of life, the sacrament of extreme unction prepares the soul for its last passage. By this rite, the soul is healed by the remission of all sins for which it is truly sorry. This sacrament of the sick, as we also call it, prepares the soul for death by fortifying it for the temptations that may try a person in the last hour of death. What about the importance of marriage, Mark? asked John. Isn't that a sacrament too? Right, replied Mark. Between confirmation and extreme unction, most Catholics will experience the sacrament of matrimony. As the priest administers this sacrament to the couple, The sacramental grace of marriage is given to their souls as an aid to marital faithfulness. It is a grace that strengthens their souls to walk in unity and raise their family as faithful Catholics. What about the last two sacraments, quizzed John? You said there were seven. The sacrament of holy orders or priesthood, continued Mark, is conferred by the laying on of a bishop's hands to indicate the passing on of the apostolic powers to a new minister of God. In the case of a priest, for example, this sacrament empowers his soul with a special grace which will enable him to minister to the souls of others. You believe then, questioned John, that this special grace for holy orders is what helps prepare a priest's soul to be a minister to his people? Yes, agreed Mark. After a pause he continued, The remaining two sacraments, which are repeated more than once, also bring a man's soul under the direct influence of God's grace. The sacrament of penance, or confession, the sacramental effect of restoring the soul to sanctifying grace if it has fallen. The confession of venial sins increases grace in the soul and strengthens it against future temptation. And then, lastly, participation of the Eucharist or communion nourishes the soul and complements the healing effects of penance and extreme unction. In fact, some catechisms call the Eucharist the medicine of immortality, because it is quite literally the bread of life. At this point the waitress brought their lunch. After a while they continued their discussion while they finished eating. Well, said John, you've opened my eyes to the central importance of the immortal soul to Roman Catholic teaching. I knew that it was important, but to be honest I didn't realize how it unified so many aspects of Catholic belief. I suppose, then, that we could extend the importance of the immortal soul belief to other related Catholic beliefs, such as purgatory, indulgences, the judgment of hell, and the state of limbo. Would that be right? Exactly, John, agreed Mark. Each of those other doctrines would also be meaningless if the Catholic definition of man's soul was an error, but it isn't, of course. Then all of this would give you plenty of reason to consider such an important belief by coming out to our lecture, right? John urged, giving the last word a slight emphasis. Mark quickly caught the twist in John's invitation. He began to grin and replied, All right, I see how you've steered to that point. Let's pay the bill and talk a little more on the way back to the parking lot the two men left the restaurant, and as they returned to their cars, Mark considered the lecture invitation. Seeing that he had so wholeheartedly agreed to the importance of the Immortal Soul Doctrine, he found it difficult to say no to John. Well, John, I guess I'm agreeable. I'm sure enough about my convictions on this to have them questioned. Meet you outside the lecture hall, suggested John. That'll be fine, agreed Mark. The two men
1: nodded to each other, and departed for their cars. CHAPTER Seven: A REVEALING LECTURE. THE SOUL DEFINED
0: When the two gentlemen met outside of the lecture hall that evening, Mark felt a little uneasy as he approached the doorway and viewed all the unknown faces. John seemed to sense Mark's feelings and calmly remarked, There are quite a number of faces that I don't recognize here either, if I can guess what you're thinking, Mark. There will probably be a question session about halfway through the lecture, so you'll have a chance to question the speaker, if you wish. As they entered the auditorium and took their seats, Mark expressed surprise that an open question session would be offered in a public meeting. Would that be customary, John, to open discussion to the audience? Not always, Mark, replied John, but it's certainly not unusual in our public lectures, or else we would invite informal discussion after the lecture is over. It's a good way to encourage understanding and test the truth of what one believes. The two sat down, and shortly afterward the chairman approached the speaker's table and welcomed the audience. We are pleased that so many of you consider this topic important enough to spend an evening in its consideration. Our speaker, Mr. Bolton, will be referring to the Bible a great deal this evening, and we strongly suggest that you look up the passages yourself as you follow him through. If anyone does not have a Bible, our stewards will be glad to offer you one. When the chairman's opening was completed, he introduced the speaker, Mr. Bolton, and repeated the address title, Immortality of the Soul, A Stray from Bible Teaching the speaker approached the table, opened his Bible, and began. When a man dies, what becomes of him? That's a question that has confronted mankind from its beginning. It is the question that hovers in the back of every man's mind during his entire life, and becomes more insistent and important as he advances toward the end of life. In the Bible, Job bluntly asked the question, If a man die, shall he live again? Job 14, verse 14 to which the Bible gives a conditional answer. Conditional because eternal life, or immortality, is not presented as man's birthright in the Bible. Immortality is offered as a reward, a future hope to be given when Christ returns. But that will surely not be agreed upon by many others who read the Bible. So, let's ask the Bible to speak, and there is no better place to begin than at the creation of man. The first passage we will look at is Genesis 2 verse 7. While you find this passage, I should explain that my quotations will be taken from the King James Version of the Bible. This is not because I believe this version is free from shortcomings, but I am convinced that its translation of some of the key terms that we will refer to this evening are more clearly expressed in that version than in most others. Now, in Genesis 2 verse 7 we read, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. My comment about the use of the King James Bible is illustrated by this first reference, ladies and gentlemen. Instead of living soul, some translations express it as living being, which accurately represents the original word, but with a drawback. If one is interested in letting the Bible define its own terms, it is very useful here at the creation of man to discover that the word soul is used to describe what man became. He wasn't given a soul, he became a soul. Using other translations, we might not be aware that a soul is what man became in total, rather than it being only that part of the man which is spiritual or non-material. Please notice carefully that life resulted from the introduction of the breath of God into the body of dust. We can express this point in the form of a simple equation. The speaker then stepped toward the projection screen and wrote, The body of dust plus the breath of life equals a living soul. Returning to the table, he looked out toward the audience, and explained slowly, "'Dust, without the breath of life, is not the man, and the breath of life, without the dust, is not the man. Man was brought into being when the breath of God gave life to dust. Therefore man did not receive a soul, he was not infused with something which could later be separated from the body. Rather, man was given the breath of life and became a living soul.' A soul then, in Bible language, is definitely not something immaterial or invisible, a kind of divine quality or spiritual principle. Literally, according to the Bible, a soul is simply a living creature, and not necessarily human. You may be astonished at this last comment, friends, but according to the Genesis account of creation, reptiles, insects, and birds are described as souls. And the proof? Why right here in Genesis? Turn with me now to Genesis chapter 1. At verse 21, we read, And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth. Some Bible margins correctly note that the word creature here is the standard Hebrew word for soul. The exact same word is used in Genesis 2, verse 7, to describe Adam as a living soul. You could confirm this yourself by checking the use of the word soul in a good concordance. Literally, then, Genesis 1, verse 21 speaks of the creeping soul that has life. Now notice that soul is used again, unnoticeably in most versions, in Genesis 1 verse 30. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, wherein there is life. Hebrew equals soul. Again, a Bible margin such as mine brings to attention that the word life is translated soul in other places such as Genesis 2 verse 7. Literally, Genesis is saying that all animal creatures are living souls. It would follow from this, of course, that when the breath of life is removed, the soul or creature, whether human or animal, perishes completely. The soul or creature returns to the dust, as Genesis says. This truth is entirely obscured when one defines the soul as something immaterial or a spiritual principle. Ladies and gentlemen, let's see how the Bible describes death and its effects on the soul. If these points about the soul are accurate, We should expect the Bible to describe man's death as being the same as the death of other animal creatures, since both are living souls. We might also expect to find the term soul being described as having material rather than immaterial characteristics. Even more unlikely to some, we should expect to find souls being described as dying, that is, a physical death, not merely a spiritual or figurative death. Well, what do we find in the Bible? Are these predictions satisfied or not? Indeed they are, dear friends. Consistent with the statements in Genesis 1 about animals having souls, Ecclesiastes states, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other." yea, they all have one breath, so that a man, in this sense, has no preeminence over a beast. All go to one place, all are dust, and all turn to dust again. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 18-20. See also Psalm 49, verse 12. An alarming statement? Perhaps you agree, especially in view of the popular teaching, that in death man does have preeminence over the beasts because of his soul contrary to this bible passage many have been taught that animals do not have man's spirit but here the bible shows this to be untrue ecclesiastes says animals and the sons of men all have one breath that word breath is the standard bible word translated in many other places as spirit as at the end of this fourth chapter in fact just by the phrase no preeminence at death the inspired writer is proclaiming a truth that directly challenges one of the most common teachings of Christendom. Man does not have a spirit different from the rest of the animal creation. If that spirit is immortal, then we are left with the absurdity that animals also have an immortal spirit. They all have one spirit, says the Bible. Returning to our predictions from what Genesis 1 reveals about the soul, do we find that the soul is described in the Bible with material qualities, or is it described as something immaterial, intangible, and spiritual. In order to be efficient with our time, I have composed some lists for you which we will project on the auditorium screen. The speaker adjusted the projector, and as the audience viewed the screen, the following points appeared as a list. From the King James Bible. 1. Souls can be strangled. Job 7, verse 15. 2. Souls have blood. Jeremiah 2, verse 34. 3. Souls can be bought or sold. Leviticus 2 verse 11. 4. Souls can touch. Leviticus 5 verse 2. 5. Souls can eat. Leviticus 17 verse 12. As you read each of these, the speaker continued, you may wonder why you have not noticed this kind of wording in your reading of the Bible. The reasons may be that in a modern translation or some church Bibles, the word soul is replaced by terms such as a person, someone, a being, or even the pronouns he and she. Such translations, although accurate, obscure these very startling and revealing uses of the word soul. If it was only translated as person, or by personal pronouns like he, the popular belief in the immortal soul would never have been thought to have support from the Bible at all. Such inconsistency in translation can be very misleading. The King James is definitely not free of doctrinal bias, but on this topic it is more helpful than most in revealing what the Bible really does mean by the word soul. Our final prediction from the Genesis definition of soul was that we should expect the soul to be described as dying. If it just means a creature, then it will only be related to bodily functions or senses. Now on this point, the Bible is quite emphatic. A soul can die, not just in a figurative or spiritual sense. Again, allow me to list some Bible passages on the screen. Mark became disturbed by what the speaker was illustrating on the screen, and he decided to write the Bible passages down on a piece of paper to study later. The list appeared on the screen from the King James Bible. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, which took it, and smote it with the edge of the sword and all the souls that were therein. Joshua 10 verse 32 He spared not their soul from death, but gave their life over to pestilence. Israel and Egypt. Psalm 78 verse 50 Deliver my soul from the sword. Psalm 22 verse 20 He poured out his soul unto death. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Again, the speaker addressed the audience when all had time to survey the passages. It is a startling list. Would you agree, ladies and gentlemen? These passages have been selected because they have no opportunity for someone to suggest that the soul only dies in a spiritual sense, as when it is overcome by sin. Each passage is describing death to the soul by physical means. Clearly, an immaterial soul cannot be destroyed by the thrust of a soldier's sword. Therefore, all that we have observed about what the Bible does and does not mean by the word soul, demonstrates that the soul is not immortal. After death, then, man has no part of him that is conscious and enduring. And yet, contrary to such plain Bible testimony, I can cite the following statements from a current catechism entitled The Teaching of Christ, edited by R. Lawler. On page 57. It is the spiritual principle that makes him, man, open to understanding, Man's soul is not material. On page 518, the soul in purgatory now realizes far more than it ever could, and suffers from knowing that it is for a while impeded from the beatific vision. Page 519, speaking of the claim that some souls will go into limbo, I quote, God will bless them, these souls, with natural happiness. And finally, to quote from another book by the same religious community, edited by G. Brantle, And approved with imprimatur. On page 47, the death of a man, however, is not the death of his soul. Death is a separation of soul and matter. The soul, in other words, is immortal, and does not itself corrupt. The speaker now peered out toward the audience with a serious expression. I have not read these quotes just to be argumentative, but to demonstrate how blatantly they contradict the plain testimony of those scriptures we have just considered. Each of the passages from the earlier list indicates very clearly that the soul is material, not immaterial. The quotes from these church books claim that after death, the soul is able to realize, suffer, know, have vision, and experience natural happiness. Such claims can only be made by a trust in something like church tradition, rather than the inspired voice of scripture. But these unbiblical descriptions of the soul can be contrasted with other types of biblical statements. May I just share a few of these with you? As the speaker prepared the projection, Mark looked at John with an expression of dismay. Taking up his pen, Mark then turned towards the screen and read, Death described as a sleep for good men, Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, Acts 7, verse 60, and bad men, 1 Kings 14, 20, 2 Chronicles 12, verse 16. See also Daniel 12, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, John 11, 11 to 14 From the King James Bible Death brings a complete end to all of man's life thought senses and action whether he is good or bad for the living know that they shall die but the dead know not anything also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished for there is no work nor device nor knowledge nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest Ecclesiastes 9 verses 5 6 and 10 his breath goeth forth he returneth to his earth in that very day his thoughts perish psalm 146 verse 4 the dead praise not the Lord neither any that go down into silence psalm 115 verse 17 why died I not from the womb I should have slept and then I had been at rest there in death the wicked cease from troubling they hear not the voice of the oppressor. Job 3 verse eleven, thirteen, seventeen, 13, 17, and 18. As Mark finished reading and recording the last quotation, he elbowed John slightly and whispered, I take it that those quotations from church texts were from Roman Catholic writers? John returned, from his brief descriptions I'd say that seems likely, but they would typify the views held by many other churches. But when he suggests the Bible doesn't speak of an immortal soul or consciousness after death, Mark persisted in a whispered voice. Some of our Catholic books, excluded by the King James Bible, do teach the soul is immortal and is conscious after death. The speaker continued with additional points, and then made his final comments about the quotations. Ladies and gentlemen, in contrast to the writings of men, these Bible quotes flatly deny that a soul has thoughts, knowledge, Or a sense of either appreciation or remorse for its condition after death. In Bible language, the dead know not anything. All their senses and consciousness have perished. I'll now ask if anyone from the audience can name a passage from the Bible that uses the term Immortal Soul. I have a Bible concordance with me on the table and would be glad to loan it to anyone during or after this lecture if anyone believes that the term Immortal Soul is found in the Bible. The speaker then paused and smiled as he faced the audience. Questioning the speaker. Mark seemed to forget his self-consciousness, and before really thinking about it, he stood up in the audience, cleared his voice, and facing the speaker, he responded, Mr. Speaker, I feel that such a challenge can be answered. Are you aware that in the Catholic Bible, for example, in books often called the Apocryphal, the teaching of the immortal soul is clearly expressed? As a Catholic, I believe that such books are part of the Bible, and therefore provide the evidence that you suggest is not available. Mark looked behind him to take his chair, but as he was about to be seated, the speaker faced in his direction and replied, Thank you for your question, friend. Have you considered what's implied in your response to the obvious teaching from these other Bible quotations? The quotes that I presented clearly teach that the soul is mortal. Now, if there are statements to the contrary in other books within the Catholic Bible, we must ask, if the Bible is God's word, will it contradict itself? mark still standing replied no definitely not fine continued mr bolton then several possibilities remain either i am misrepresenting the bible passages i have quoted or i am presenting them accurately and the other roman catholic books you refer to contradict the rest of the bible if this is the case the authority of such books would have to be seriously questioned mark answered okay since that evidence would take some time to examine why not consider a more common ground for evidence the new testament can you provide the same kind of evidence for your case from the new testament mr bolton if you will bear with me friend promised mr bolton i will gladly accept your challenge since you accepted mine mark nodded in satisfaction and finally took his seat with anticipation looking across the audience the speaker suggested that everyone turn in the new testament to first corinthians chapter 15 Friends, I believe this passage presents the Bible's clearest definition of what is and what is not meant by a soul. 1 Corinthians 15 is a very detailed explanation about resurrection. Paul explains in Bible terms what happens to man after he dies, up to the event of resurrection at Christ's return. Now, according to many who believe that the soul leaves the body after death, Christ will reunite the soul with a new body when he returns. Resurrection in this view involves the raising of a new body from the grave and joining it with the soul which has already been in heaven. Therefore, the first question we must ask is whether Paul describes a resurrection as the joining of a soul to a body in 1 Corinthians 15. Secondly, does Paul make a clear distinction between those two elements? I'll use the overhead projector and write this important question on the screen so we can keep it in front of us. The speaker then wrote the following question on the projection screen for the audience. Is the soul distinct from the body? Mr. Bolton continued, Thirdly, if popular notions about the soul are correct, is the soul described as coming down from heaven to meet its body? Or instead, is the body described as being raised up to meet its soul? We'll diagram this as follows. Mark looked to see the following diagram on the overhead. Does resurrection involve a union of body and soul? He saw a picture of a grave with a body coming out and a soul coming down from heaven with the word UNION in the middle and a big question mark. Well, let's start with point number 1. In 1 Corinthians 15 particularly, verses 35-56, to do we find any indication of a soul being joined to a body? Anyone from the audience is welcome to respond. Heads across the audience bent down to look at the Bible page. Mark scoured his Bible page up and down the chapter but could not find any indication from the passage that a soul is united with its body. The speaker then continued. Very well, let's move on to the second claim. Does Paul make any statement that would suggest even the slightest distinction between a soul and a body? Again, Mark searched the chapter, but couldn't find such a statement. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, does Paul teach that at some point the soul leaves a heavenly dwelling to be joined with its body, or that a body rises to meet its soul." Mark twisted in his chair as he accepted this final challenge and bent over his Bible, but he found that such a description was definitely absent from the Apostle's explanation. Mark began to feel some despair as he considered the strength of the speaker's arguments. As the speaker closed his Bible, he added, "...we appeal to you, friends, let the Bible be its own interpreter. Immortality for the soul is not man's birthright." It is Christ's future reward for those who belong to Him. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23 A Valuable Evening After the chairman closed the meeting, John and Mark made their way along the aisle and out of the auditorium. Neither passed a comment. As they left the building and headed toward the parking lot, Mark finally broke the silence. John, I can see that your case from the Bible is stronger than I first imagined. I mean, the Bible certainly uses the word soul in ways that are surprising at least to someone with my beliefs. I'll have to share those Bible quotes with my wife when I get back to Toronto. I'm sure glad that Anne Adams arranged for us to meet on the plane. John, how long will you be in Vancouver before you return to Toronto? I'll be here on business for about another week, Mark. When I get back, I'll be sure to get in touch. Yes, Mark added, I'd appreciate that. Thinking of what you said a few days ago on the plane, it seems that I have found something valuable while in Vancouver. Extending his hand to John, he said, Thanks so much for your discussion, and for inviting me to the lecture. I don't think I will easily forget it. The two men shook hands and departed. Mark thought to himself, I wonder how Mary will react when I show her that animals have souls. Chapter 8. Turning Point Implications What do you mean Genesis says that fish and animals have souls? Mary asked in an amused voice, wagging her head. Mark, I'm glad I came to pick you up here at the airport. If it was someone else in the family, they would wonder if you belong in church next Sunday. Now hang on, dear, Mark protested. Give me a chance to show you the points from the Bible itself. If you drive home, I'll give you a quick summary of what I got from the lecture that I went to in Vancouver. Also, the real reason I went to the lecture was because I met up with that friend of Alec and Ann Adams. John Westwood is his name, the friend they know who often travels out west. My discussions with John, and then his invitation to the lecture, really made my trip, Mary. That's where I picked up these points about what soul really means in the Bible. Mary sighed as she turned the cognition. All right, she urged, still with an amused tone. I'm eager to hear all this, and have it proved from the Bible. Mark proceeded to read the quotes that he had written down during the lecture, adding whatever comments he could remember from the speaker. When they reached home, Mark finished describing the highlights of the Vancouver lecture. After supper, I'll go over what I discussed with John about the sacraments. So far, Mary, what do you think? Mary answered, I think I'll need to borrow that list of Bible passages and study them myself. It would seem I've never read those passages. But I'll admit, they are thought-provoking. Do you see, Mary, what the implication of this issue is? Mark continued. Not as yet, dear. I obviously haven't thought about it long enough. What's the implication, then? Mary asked. Well, simply, if the Roman Catholic position regarding the soul is clearly an error, then the whole doctrine of the sacraments and grace is also shown to be false. She caught her husband's arm. Mark, how can you even suggest such a thing? Do you really think the meaning of all the sacraments depends on whether the Church is correct about the nature of the soul? That's ridiculous. I don't just think it, dear. I know it. Think about each of the sacraments and the grace they administer. Each of them assumes that the man's soul is immortal, in order for each sacramental grace to have a supernatural effect. Reject the immortal soul, and you've rejected with it all that the sacraments are based on. I guess I'd never thought about those connections before, admitted Mary. You mean this boils down to something similar to Alex's recent approach with us? Examining the basic foundations in order to test the other doctrines that are built on them? Yes, said Mark. That's it. It's amazing when you give it some thought how many doctrines are affected by just one or two foundational beliefs. It's the same with our Church's claim for special authority or tradition outside of Scripture. So much depends on the truth or error of a few vital points. Mark, I think you'd do well to go back to the priest and share your concerns with him. I'm sure he can offer some guidance on this issue about the soul. Mark nodded. Agreed, Mary. I'll make a point of doing that tomorrow. UNSATISFACTORY ANSWERS. "'Thank you very much, Father, for your time. I know you're busy. And thanks for the catechism. It looks quite detailed.' Mark clasped the priest's hands, then made his way out of the parish office and through the church. Outside he began to reflect on his discussions during the past hour with the priest. He felt a little uneasy as he proceeded on the way home. "'Well, seeker of truth,' teased Mary, "'what have you gleaned from your meeting with the priest?' Mark drew a chair up to the dining-room table beside his wife and placed the catechism on the table. He drew his thumb over the book pages several times, but not with the intention of opening to any page. Well, how did it go? Something wrong, Mark, she persisted. Did you get some answers or not? Keeping his eyes fixed on the catechism in front of him, Mark finally responded. Answers? Yes, I did get answers. Well, good. Mary expressed a sigh of relief as she got this reassurance. But it's the answers that are bothering me, dear. I mean, I spent almost an hour in the office there, and one by one I put forward the points I copied from the lecture in Vancouver. Their father replied that there was more than one way to answer the points. He did agree that the quotations the speaker used from the Old Testament were certainly in the Bible, and he agreed that they weren't just the bias of the King James Bible. But then he explained that revelation about the doctrine of the immortal soul was progressive, a kind of development over time. He suggested it wasn't until clear insight about the state of the dead was given to the Church after Christ that a complete understanding was reached. Did he mean, Mark, it was the tradition after the New Testament that gave the clearest understanding about the soul after death? Mark answered, Yes, that's about what he meant. Seems we are back to the issue of church tradition versus the word of scripture. There were two words the Father repeatedly stressed in our conversation. The way he put it was, what was taught implicitly in the Old Testament, and to some extent in the New, was taught explicitly through the later revelation to the church. What is the difference between those two words, implicit and explicit, she asked. Mark thought for a moment. By implicit, he means that the doctrine about the state of the dead was only implied or hinted at in an indirect way. But in later revelation, after Christ, these doctrines were clearly and emphatically spelled out. I see, said Mary. Okay, what's the matter with that? At least he's being honest in that admission. What's the matter with it? returned Mark with irritation in his voice. What's the matter with it? Well for me, Mary, there are at least two things that matter with that reply. To admit that Catholic doctrines concerning the state of the dead are only implicit in the Old Testament is just a polite way of saying that the Old Testament is virtually silent about such Catholic doctrines. Considering that the Old Testament covers almost 4,000 years of God's dealings with man, was God for 4,000 years completely vague on the most basic issue that concerns mankind? And were Christ and the Apostles only slightly clear on the issue? I don't know about you, Mary, but I find that rather difficult to accept. Secondly, Mary, that kind of admission strengthens the point that the speaker in Vancouver was trying to establish in his lecture. He challenged the audience to find clear evidence in the Old Testament or New Testament for the Church's doctrine of the immortal soul. He said that these doctrines were more the products of the pagan reasoning of Plato than divine revelation from the Bible. He claimed that Church Fathers, such as Augustine, openly admitted to be students of Plato and other Greek philosophers. That consequently they combine the beliefs of such pagans with true Christian revelation. He then explained that this occurred in the early centuries after Christ, and now our priest tells me that the Church received its fuller revelation of the soul in the early centuries after Christ. The speaker's explanation and the priest's explanation meet at the same point. Don't you see, dear? Looking a little perturbed, Mary answered, Do you mean it's not a coincidence that the Church received its fuller understanding of the soul, just when Catholic teachers like Augustine came under the direct influence of pagan philosophers? Yes, and that's perhaps why the picture suddenly became clearer, said Mark. The speaker made the point, you see, that it was really the pagan philosophers that made the revelation clearer by their direct influence on Catholic leaders, who claimed that their revelations came from the Holy Spirit. So as you said, we're back to the question of tradition versus the authority of the Bible. I can see, Mary broke in, that the lecture in Vancouver has struck right at the heart of our earlier discussions with Alec and Anne. But what about the Catechism here? How does it fit into your conversation with the priest, Mark? Well, again, by coincidence, it also fits into the Vancouver lecture. It's really a Catholic catechism, written in the States, but the priest explained that because it's been so popular, it's been widely distributed. It was the same catechism that the speaker himself quoted from. Discussing all this with the priest, he turned to the sections dealing with the state of the dead, and we read them together. Now what really bothers me is what I then read from the Catechism. Uh, I don't understand, dear. Explain, said Mary. Mark continued. While well, keeping in mind that we've just discussed about the doctrines of the soul being supposedly unclear in the Old Testament, look at what's implied by these statements. Mark turned to the section entitled, Revelation and the Meaning of Death. Look, Mary, on page 513 here, the Catechism says, Over long periods of salvation history, revelation concerning the significance of death became progressively more complete. In the centuries since public revelation was completed, i.e. completion of the New Testament, there has been a progressively fuller understanding of this revelation. See just what the priest confirmed. Clear revelation about death came after even the New Testament. Now look at the remarks about the admitted silence of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was no clear recognition that significant personal life continued after man's years on earth. Death was considered to bring religious activity to a close. Now, can you believe that, dear? Mark urged. A Catholic catechism is admitting that the Old Testament teaches man is totally unconscious after death. No hint of an immortal soul surviving after death just exactly what the speaker tried to demonstrate in his lecture. And furthermore, what does this mean here? Death was considered to bring religious activity to a close. If the Bible is God's revelation, and these are His inspired words, is this suggesting that God was not fully informed on the truth of the matter? Isn't it more likely, dear, suggested Mary, that it means only the Old Testament writers considered death to be a complete end? Perhaps, conceded Mark, but if that's so, It would then follow that what they wrote was not inspired, or that God allowed them to teach an incorrect view. The Old Testament writers didn't just say they had no knowledge of what happened to the soul after death, they clearly stated that it corrupts, leaving man totally unconscious after death. Apparently then, God allowed such misinformation to pass on as scripture, and for almost four thousand years. That's not what I would expect from a divinely inspired book. Now look at what is said concerning the New Testament on the next two pages. The early Christian community did not focus its reflection so much on death as on the awaited triumphal return of Christ. Hence, in early New Testament times, there was no great preoccupation with the death of the individual. In later centuries, the Church's teaching on the condition of the individual after his death and before the final resurrection at the end of time was solemnly defined. Again, Mary, what bothers me about this admission is that the whole point of the lecture was to prove that in the Bible, immortality is a promised reward and isn't given until Christ's return. Here the Catechism admits that the New Testament doesn't say anything about man's soul after death, but stresses the importance of Christ's return and resurrection. So, indirectly, it's admitted that the doctrine of the immortal soul is not what the New Testament teaches. Its teaching concerns resurrection from the grave when Christ returns. Mary reread the quote from the page again. Then what about purgatory, or hell? Does the Catechism admit that the Bible is silent about those doctrines too? It must, I guess, if it agrees that the immortal soul isn't taught there. Yes, it does discuss those other doctrines, dear. Look at this frank admission on page 517. The word purgatory is not in the Bible, nor is the doctrine of purgatory explicitly taught there. The teaching of purgatory seems to be implicit for example, in the narrative in the second book of Maccabees. Now, what I find so striking about these quotes, Mary, is those carefully guarded words that I mention were used by the priest, not explicitly taught, and seems to be implicit. They run just a little shy of frankly admitting that purgatory is not a Bible doctrine. The proof that is offered for support only seems to imply it. I feel a little uneasy about using Maccabees now, that even the Catechism admits that the Old and New Testament don't teach the doctrine of purgatory. If Maccabees only indirectly suggests the doctrine, why doesn't Christ or the Apostles add more light to the issue? In view of the Catechism's other admissions, it makes this isolated passage in Maccabees rather suspect. That's probably why, Mark, the writer expressed the point for Maccabees as cautiously as he did. It only seems to imply... It reminds me of a point that Alec Adams once made when I was talking to him about using books like Maccabees as proof for doctrines that are not found elsewhere in the Bible. Checking at the library later, I found he was right. Jerome, one of the greatest of our Catholic scholars in the early centuries, rejected Maccabees and other books included only in our Catholic Bible. Jerome did not believe they belonged as part of the inspired canon or collection of Old Testament Hebrew books. The library book explained that there were also other notable Catholic scholars with Jerome that made the same judgment about the group of books Maccabees belongs with. Others such as who queried Mary. Other scholars and saints such as Athanasius and Origen, two of the most learned Bible scholars recognized by our church from the early centuries. There is a point that's beginning to bother me more and more, especially when our Catechism says what it does about the silence of the Bible on the belief of the immortal soul in purgatory. How can Catholics revere Jerome's saintly scholarship in composing the Old Walgate Bible, for example, but reject his judgment on such a simple matter as what books correctly belong in the canon of Scripture? The Church wholeheartedly honors Athanasius' grasp of the Trinity, but feels he wasn't able to judge what books belong in the Old Testament. There seems to be some glaring contradictions in all this. Perhaps we're picking the scholar to fit our conclusions. And what about the doctrine of hell, she continued, What does the Catechism say about it? In the section about hell, if I just turn the pages here, Mary, we find another startling admission. Yes, here it is. It says regarding the Old Testament period, In the earliest stages of salvation history, there was no real perception of the reality of hell as it came to be understood in later Revelation. Page 520. She raised her eyebrows and stared blankly at Mark. But Mark, how can the Catholic Church be content with such a such a poverty of Bible evidence for such basic doctrines. This perplexes me, exclaimed Mary. Perhaps these admissions are given without apology, Mary, because the total trust is given to our Catholic traditions. But even the tradition seems self-contradictory on this issue, doesn't it? asked Mary. I mean, Jerome and others rejected those books that seemed to be the most implicit on these doctrines. But then some like Augustine gave them a scriptural standing. And yet, Both men were Catholic saints and blessed in their work by the Holy Ghost. That's terribly perplexing to me the more I think about it. For the next few moments neither said any more about the issue. Mary left the table to check something on the stove. Mark drew out a small pamphlet that he had tucked in the back of the catechism and began studying it carefully. The lecture was right. As Mary returned from the kitchen, she first stopped behind Mark and peered over his shoulder to see what he was reading. She walked around to her chair and sat down, looking expectantly toward Mark. Well, what's that you're reading so carefully? Looking up from the booklet, Mark frowned before he spoke. This is the last reference that I looked at with Father Davis. Holding up the booklet, he explained, This is one of our Catholic pamphlets, written for the non-Catholic. It's called, Some Bible Beliefs Have to be Wrong, as it's dealing with Catholic answers to another religious community which does not accept the immortality of the soul as Bible teaching. On page 9 here, opening the page for Mary to see, it deals with many of the same points from the Old Testament that were raised at the lecture I attended in Vancouver, such as the Hebrew meaning of the word soul. Now, to my surprise, our pamphlet admits the following. I'll just read it to you. The Old Testament word nephesh simply meant a living soul, and the Hebrew would use the same word for any living being, animal or human. What? exclaimed Mary. A Catholic pamphlet actually says that? Let me read it again, Mark, she insisted. Turning from the booklet, she asked Mark, But why would an informal Catholic writer say that? I don't ever remember reading that kind of statement in our older literature, or hearing that explained in my catechism classes. Look at what else it said here, Mary, continued Mark. Commenting on the admission about how soul is used in the Old Testament, the writer, who has imprimatur approval, by the way, says this. What all of these references go to prove is that the Semites who wrote the Bible looked on the human personality in a somewhat different fashion from our own. This is not a question of biblical revelation, but of the notions of human psychology entertained by the biblical writers. Page 9. What an evasion of the point, blurted Mary in a tone of annoyance. The defense then is to admit the facts against the doctrine being taught in the Bible, but then to attribute this to the limitations and notions of the Bible writers. Mark. Where is the Catholic belief in the inspiration and authority of the Bible here?" Mark replied coolly, It seems, doesn't it, that in order to support Church tradition, we are forced to chip away at the integrity and inspiration of the Bible. But what about this statement on the same page, 10, still under the heading, Immortality? We are no more to be restricted by the limitations of the Biblical authors in their knowledge of human psychology, i.e. the meaning of soul. Than we are to be restricted by their limitations in other realms of science. What we have to do is accept biblical revelation, but accept it in terms that we know must agree with sound scientific knowledge. Apparently, scientific knowledge sheds more light on the meaning or the reality of the soul than the Bible. I don't know about you, Mary, but I feel uneasy about the stress put on the limitations of the biblical writers. It is God's word, isn't it? The biblical writer's knowledge of human psychology hardly has anything to do with the question of how they do or do not define the word soul. Furthermore, at the end of this section of the pamphlet, there is a statement that could have been used to end the speaker's lecture in Vancouver. It seems to imply that the Catholics over the ages who have tried to prove the immortality of the soul from the Bible have really wasted their time in an impossible exercise. Thus, whereas the Bible does not, it is true, speak of the immortality of the human soul, A concept which it does not have in our sense of this word, it does speak of the immortality of the human person, and in our language this means the immortality of the human soul. Page 10. Mary piped in again, I wouldn't have believed a Catholic with authorization would claim that unless I had read it myself. What does it imply by, in our sense of this word? In our language this means, whose sense? If God was restricted by the limitation of the Bible writers, apparently his message is better clarified by the modern insights of psychology. Present knowledge clarifies what the Bible writers could not clarify. Mark, the closer we explore these foundational beliefs of ours, the more my faith in them is weakened. I feel the same way, dear. Why don't you finish making supper and I'll check the Catechism about another issue that I briefly touched on with the priest. He said the book has a good summary about the seven sacraments. I was explaining the meaning of these to the friend I met at West. When we finished our lunch and walked back to the cars, he asked me how much scriptural support there were for each of them, and how many of them would require the additional support of later church tradition. What did you answer? asked Mary as she proceeded into the kitchen. Mark, raising his voice so that she could catch his answer, replied, I told him I wasn't too clear where most of the support was taken from, but I said I'd look into it when I got home. Fine, you do that checking, dear, and I'll finish making the dinner." Disturbing admissions. For the next hour, Mark skimmed through the catechism, jotted page numbers down, and at one point left the dining-room table to check something in another book. By the time Mary called the family for dinner, Mark had found a number of points on each of the sacraments. He promised to read what he had found when they were finished eating. All right, Mary, let's push those dishes over to the side, and I'll grab what I've been reading. Returning from the dining-room, Mark sat down with two books on his lap. Okay, dear, what did you find? She invited. Well, I started with the sacrament of the Eucharist. Some scriptural support is given for a number of points, but the Catechism again admits that certain aspects of the Eucharist worship have come from a development over time. Statements like this one comment on the practice of placing the sacred host in a container during holy hours for the members to adore in their worship. Faith in the enduring presence of Christ in the blessed sacrament prompted the gradual development of the devotions to Christ in the Eucharist even apart from the Mass. With the passage of time, reverent reflection led the Church to enrich its Eucharistic devotion. Page 428. After Mark had finished reading, Mary observed, So, some aspects of the Eucharist worship are admitted to be additions, I guess through tradition, to what is given in Scripture itself. It would seem that's the point, agreed Mark. Then, in the section on the sacrament of priesthood, it says, concerning the necessity of celibacy, Different practices developed in different parts of the church. In the West, it became the practice to ordain only those who felt they were able and willing to live celibate lives. Page 442. And yet, in the section explaining this, no scripture is given to prove celibacy is an absolute necessity. Paul is cited as referring to some of the practical benefits of being a celibate servant, but again, tradition has become the sole authority. A condition that the Apostle says can be helpful is changed into a binding rule by our tradition. Mark looked at Mary to catch her reaction and proceeded to read what the Catechism said about the Sacrament of Confirmation. Speaking of confirmation, the admissions are a little more disturbing, Mark commented. See what it says here. Not everything the Church believes is explicitly articulated in abstract statements. The faith can be embodied in its attitudes and rites before it is explicitly formulated. This is certainly the case for the Sacrament of Confirmation. The Gospels contain no direct teaching on it as they do the Eucharist, Baptism and Repentance. Page 462. So in place of direct statements from Scripture, we are directed to a faith that is embodied in attitudes and rites, Mark added in an increasingly critical tone. Now, what do you think? Can an attitude be an authoritative source for something as important as one of our sacraments? Thinking of what Alec showed us about the Bereans in the New Testament, if even Paul's teaching had to be checked against the Scriptures, how could our Church be content to establish a sacrament by appealing merely to Church attitudes or accumulated rites? I find that very unsatisfactory. Does that cover all that you've checked, Mark? Or did you come across anything similar for some of the other sacraments? asked Mary. Well, the last point I checked was infant baptism. On page 458 here in the Catechism it says, The Church has solemnly defined the validity of infant baptism. In fact, Church law commands Catholics to have their children baptized within the first weeks after birth. In any case, infant baptism clearly was practiced very early. Origen, writing in the 3rd century, expressly states that the Church's tradition of baptizing infants came from the Apostles. These are the kind of statements that I'm finding increasingly hard to accept without a critical feeling, due, I guess, to the prodding of people like the Adams and John Westwood. The Catechism here provides no clear scriptural proof of the New Testament endorsing infant baptism. I remember the priest did admit that there really is no Bible example of an infant being baptized, but tradition is God-given, he assured me. Yet the Church has made this a law and a strict command despite the total silence about it from both Christ and the Apostles. Mary looked toward the other book Mark had brought to the table. Why did you look at this one, Mark? she inquired, pointing at the book. Oh, that's Monsignor Knox's book, Enthusiasm. He's a well-known Catholic writer, and I thought I would check what he says about infant baptism. And? Mary prompted. Well, here, read this paragraph yourself. Mark slid the open book across the table to her, and she read out loud from the paragraph pointed at by Mark. It is not by any means easy to prove the doctrine of infant baptism if you are basing your arguments on the Bible only, without any appeal to tradition. Page 134. Mary read it again to herself. Drawing out her words, she commented, I think, Mark, I'm beginning to see why... Why you're becoming so dissatisfied with the answers offered by our fellow Catholics... Mark, tell me, do you really feel that it's necessary to tackle all these concerns in careful detail? I mean, at times I wonder whether all these issues that we've been searching out really do matter. Mark replied firmly, Yes, I do believe they matter, dear. The issues that we have been wrestling with, Scripture versus tradition, the authority of the Church, the claims of the Pope, the sacraments, and the belief in an immortal soul, are all fundamental to Catholic belief. Almost everything else that we believe is based on these claims. Take the soul, for example. If the Bible contradicts Catholic belief in an immortal soul, if it is not a God-revealed truth, what then of the related doctrines of hell and purgatory? They are mere figments, Mary, if the soul is not immortal. Even if one of these doctrines is in error, the authority of our Church regarding all other beliefs is automatically open to serious doubt. "'Besides, the church herself admits "'that all these beliefs are basic to our worship.' "'I see what you mean,' said Mary. "'She paused for another moment and then said, "'Say, if I can change the subject, "'while you were out west, "'I was chatting with Anne and Alec over the fence, "'and they asked if we'd be interested "'in going a little further in our discussions with them. "'I said that I'd talk it over with you "'when you got back from Vancouver. "'What do you think, Mark?' "'Mark closed the books on the table and then answered, "'Yes. "'After the experiences out west,' and what we've just gone through here this evening, I'd be very interested in talking with them again. If you speak to Anne and set up a time, that'll be fine with me. Before we do meet with them again, though, I've got to go back and have another good discussion with Father Davis. Chapter 9. Following Where Truth Leads. Final Questions On Tuesday afternoon Mark followed his own advice and made another visit to the priest. Before he arrived at the parish office, he decided to be as honest as possible about his increasing doubts and his dissatisfaction with the Church's answers to his questions. The two men had been engaged in discussion for close to an hour, when Mark finally expressed his sentiments as bluntly as he dared. To put it in a nutshell, Father Davis, I honestly feel rather disillusioned. Following through the references you loaned me, I find our own Church literature admitting that the Bible can't be used as an authority for a number of Catholic doctrines. Teachings as basic as the immortal soul and some of the sacraments seem to rely on definitions from sources apart from the Bible. What bothers me, Father, is that if these doctrines are so basic to our beliefs, why wouldn't Christ or the Apostles express them as clearly as our Catechism does? They are basic, aren't they, Father Davis? Indeed, they are basic, Mark. The priest replied, But you must have faith that the Holy Ghost guided the Church in its later revelation of these important doctrines. Such inspired guidance made these later revelations just as sure as those that we believe are explicitly taught in the Bible. Mark, the Church deserves your trust in matters of spiritual judgment. Mark paused for a moment, then replied, I hate to be awkward, Father, but if these doctrines are as basic as our Church believes, How could so many years of salvation history pass without God's people having any clear understanding of some of these basic doctrines? According to the Catechism and one of the booklets you loaned me, the Immortal Soul Doctrine and some of the Sacraments weren't clearly expressed even by the time of Christ and the Apostles. It bothers me that such important doctrines depend almost entirely for their definition on sources other than the Bible. The priest then replied, It's our Catholic conviction, Mark, that spiritual revelation is progressive. It was delivered over a long period of time, even beyond the period of Christ and the New Testament. Mark interjected, But what about the New Testament scriptures that assert that the mystery concerning the faith had, by the New Testament time, been fully revealed? I'm thinking of scriptures like Ephesians chapter 3. Mark reached toward the Bible on the priest's desk and asked, May I show you what I mean, Father, from your Bible here? Certainly Mark he replied well in ephesians 3 verse 3 paul says that he was given the knowledge of the mystery and then he explained in verse 5 this mystery that has now been revealed through the spirit to the holy apostles and prophets was unknown to any men in past generations why is it then father that whenever i ask a question that catholic teachers can't answer they tell me that it's a mystery of our faith or when I point out that a certain church doctrine is not found in the Bible, they reply that it was later revealed after the time of the Apostles. According to Paul, the mystery of the faith had already been revealed through the preaching of the Apostles. Other New Testament passages like Matthew 13 verse 11, Romans 16 verse 25, and Colossians one twenty five also state that the mystery had been fully revealed. It doesn't seem to leave any room for the claim that there are still other basic doctrines to be given centuries after the Apostles. Mark paused for a moment to see if the priest was going to answer. It appeared that he was thinking about what Mark had read, so Mark continued. Above all, Father, there is the statement from Paul that indicates that all doctrines necessary for salvation had already been expressed in the scriptures alone. How does Paul put it to Timothy? Mark looked up the passage. All Scripture is inspired by God, and can profitably be used for teaching, for refuting error, for guiding people's lives, and teaching them to be holy. This is how the man who is dedicated to God becomes fully equipped and ready for any good work. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16-17 If the Scriptures make Timothy fully equipped for teaching, correcting error, and guiding people's lives in holiness, then surely all doctrines basic for a Christian salvation must be contained within the pages of this book, don't you think, Father Davis?" The priest looked thoughtfully at Mark and questioned, But how can you be sure, Mark, that when Paul speaks of Scripture being able to fully equip a teacher like Timothy, he meant fully equipped in matters of salvation? Mark replied eagerly, Well, the clear proof of that point is right here in the passage itself. There is no doubt that when Paul speaks of being fully equipped, he is speaking about doctrines basic for salvation. Paul says in the verse just before the one I quoted, Ever since you were a child, you have known the holy scriptures. From these you can learn the wisdom that leads to salvation. The priest then answered Mark and insisted firmly, But believing as we do that the Catholic Church has an unbroken link with the apostolic church, we can have absolute confidence that the original deposit of true doctrine has been faithfully passed down to us through the ages. I believe that's a firm foundation as anyone could want who is looking for pure doctrine. Forgive my boldness, Father, but doesn't such a reply ignore the main issue? Mark pleaded in a look of distress. I mean, to claim to a non-Catholic that we have Christ's true doctrine because we believe that we have an unbroken link back to the Apostles does not of itself prove the truth of our Catholic doctrine, even if that history could be demonstrated. Many of my non-Catholic friends would contend that the earliest links we refer to are drawn from conflicting sources, and that perhaps after the Apostles' time it became an unbroken chain of accumulated errors. Shouldn't the real test of whether the Catholic Church is truly apostolic be whether all our doctrines can be traced back to the Apostles in Christ? And there's my problem. Of our own admission, some of them can be. By admitting that some doctrines were progressively revealed after Christ, we are also admitting that all of our teachings do not go right back to the Apostles. Our historical link with the Apostles seems to snap when we apply it to some Catholic doctrines, and indirectly we have admitted it. The priest warned, But you must be on your guard, Mark, against a danger that I fear you're beginning to fall into. I agree that establishing the doctrinal link is important, but when your non-Catholic friends advise you to go back to the Bible to prove your teachings, they are really advising you to have faith merely in human reasoning. Without the authoritative guidance of the Church, private judgment is all their interpretations rest on. Mark replied with a serious tone, Father, I have been considering that caution for quite a while since I began these discussions with my friends. Still, I remain rather dissatisfied with that familiar Catholic response. When I first studied the Catholic faith, and you presented to me the various reasons for accepting the faith, weren't you expecting me to apply a degree of individual judgment in order to assess your claims? Yes, agreed the priest. At that point, before your conversion, I expected you would definitely apply your own reasoning to weigh the evidence I presented. And in addition, Mark continued, I recognized the need for sincerity and the necessity of also praying for God's help. So at that point you believed that the use of my own reasoning did not exclude the need for divine assistance. Yet all of that was done without the Church, since I had not then decided in favor of the Catholic Church's authority. You see, Father, my friends also have pointed out that it was exactly this use of personal judgment that Jesus and the Apostles demanded from their first century inquirers. They have also pointed out to me that by its own claim, the Bible is a powerful living force. Peter actually called it the everlasting word of the living and eternal God, First Peter 1, verse 23. Now if that's so, when God's word is received in a good and honest heart by one who is searching in a right manner, God's word can really be a self-convicting force, if it's given such trust and respect. The priest smiled in a kindly way and said, Well, Mark, that's quite a lofty explanation, but isn't there a snag in what you have just explained? If that process is reliable in searching for spiritual truth, then how is it that at the end of the process you concluded that Catholic teaching was sound? If now you're questioning its foundations, doesn't that suggest that your way of searching is untrustworthy? Ah, Mark replied quickly, I thought you might make that objection, Father, and I believe I can offer a fair reply. Tell me, Father. When you conducted my lessons, what proportion of time did you spend reasoning with me directly from the scriptures? I recall looking at some Bible passages, but that wasn't how we spent the bulk of our lesson time. Am I being fair in saying that, Father? The priest nodded and said evenly, Yes, that's quite fair. A lot of time was also spent studying the pronouncements of church councils, the writings of the early fathers, and of course our Catholic catechism. But I believe that all of those spiritual sources are legitimate, and therefore, what's your point, Mark? Well, Father, in defense of what you're feeling is a snag in the way I'm now searching things out, I originally said that in order for truth to be found, one must be searching in the right way. The Bible seems to stipulate that it must be given complete and final authority in order for that searching to be the right way. I have to admit that when I first decided in favor of the Catholic claims, I did not follow that prescription. My trust in the Bible's final authority and my personal application to its teaching were less than what God requires for a successful search. The priest looked uneasily at Mark and asked, Where in the Bible do you find it making such an exclusive demand on the follower of God? Mark reached in his case for his Jerusalem Bible and turned to several passages which he read in succession to the priest who patiently listened. Mark began, I can't help but be impressed by declarations like these that put such trust in the absolute authority of the scripture. Jesus answered them, "You are wrong because you understand neither the scriptures." Matthew 22:29. "Have you never read the scriptures?" Matthew 21:42. "Have the book of this law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully keep everything that is written in it. Then you will prosper in your dealings." Then you will have success. Never swerve from this. Then you will be happy in all you do. Joshua 1, verses 8 and 7. Since your decrees are my delight, your statues are my counselors. I shall never forget your precepts. By these you have kept me alive. Meditating all day on your law, how I have come to love it. Yes, I love your commandments more than gold, than purest gold. Psalm 119 verses 24, 93, 97, 127 In view of statements like these, how can we suggest that any source other than the scripture can be the Christian's authority for testing doctrine? And if the scriptures are to be our meditation all the day, whatever else might claim our time must be of lesser importance. There's no question about what the psalmist meant by precepts or decrees, as indicated by the quote that I read from Joshua. It was Moses speaking, and there could be no doubt about what he meant when he spoke of the written book of this law that was to be meditated on day and night. Certainly for Moses, it was the book of Scripture, which he recorded for God. By meditating on God's decrees all the day, the psalmist was following what Joshua was told to do. It would seem, then, that anything we Catholics call tradition would have to be inferior to the Scriptures, which the psalmist valued as more worth than purest gold. I'm not convinced that's so, returned the priest. I believe that our Catholic traditions that accumulated after the completion of the Scripture were a necessary addition to Scripture. Tradition is not a second-class citizen next to Scripture. You must understand that, Mark. Mark reopened his Bible before offering his final comment to the priest. If I may so, respectfully, Father Davis, it has become increasingly evident to me, as I read the New Testament, that the Jews in Christ's day reasoned in a very similar way. They revered the sacred scripture, but also put a great faith in their accumulated traditions, which they held to be sacred and authoritative. Have you ever noticed, Father, that every reference Jesus makes to the term tradition is expressed with contempt? He was appalled at how God's people had allowed tradition to undermine God's previous revelation from scripture. If we may just read this quote from Jesus. Mark then turned to the passage. He answered, It was of you hypocrites that Isaiah so rightly prophesied. The worship they offer me is worthless. The doctrines they teach are only human regulations. You put aside the commandments of God to cling to human traditions. How ingeniously you get around the commandment of God in order to preserve your own tradition. Mark 7, verses 6 to 9. Then, predicting that the same trust in tradition would also attract the Christian community, Paul warned, The Spirit has explicitly said that during the last times there shall be some who will desert the faith. They will say marriage is forbidden, and lay down rules about abstaining from foods which God created to be accepted with thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 4 verse 3 With an expression of resolution, the priest offered his final advice, Mark, I am deeply disturbed by what you may be implying by quoting those passages to me. Obviously, there lies your ultimate decision. Is Catholic tradition concerning these doctrines of God or men? You must decide that in favor of the Church. Mark gave the priest an uneasy glance. Indeed, that's the central issue. But the more I test a number of our doctrines against Scripture, the more I conclude that tradition is in conflict with Bible teaching. That warning from Jesus in Mark's Gospel has set me thinking ever since my neighbor pointed it out to me. Mark then stood up to leave and thanked the priest for his time. Thanks for your patience, Father. I agree that I have a number of important decisions to make, but as I proceed it's becoming more obvious upon what final authority I should base those decisions. Mark then shook the priest's hand and left for home. A narrow way, few that find it. Alec Adams phoned an hour ago, Mark, and invited us over this evening for a chat, if we're free. I said you weren't home yet, that you were speaking to Father Davis, and would ask you when you got home. Mark pulled his chair up to the dinner table, and didn't offer an immediate answer to Mary's question. As they completed their dinner, Mark described his discussions with the priest, while Mary listened intently. Well, Mark, considering how you feel about your discussion with Father Davis, perhaps this is a really good evening to have another chat with the Adams. I know they're anxious to hear what conclusions we're coming to. Okay, Mary, why not give them a ring and tell them we'll be over shortly? Within the hour, Mark and Mary left to visit the Adams. During most of their discussion, Mark described his conversation with John Westwood during his trip out west and his impressions of the lecture he attended in Vancouver. As Mark concluded, Alec remarked, So I gather that you've been doing some serious thinking about the soundness of these doctrines. Anne mentioned that when she called Mary today, you were having a discussion about these points with your priest. Yes, said Mark, but to be honest, I wasn't satisfied with his answers, just as I haven't been with the answers offered in the references he gave me to read. What does your concern boil down to, Mark? asked Alec. The question of authority, admitted Mark. I now see that a number of Catholic doctrines that form the foundations of our practices cannot be established from the Bible. With doctrines like the immortal soul or infant baptism, it's not simply that the Bible is unclear concerning them. The Bible obviously makes statements about these doctrines that definitely contradict what our church authorities believe has revealed after the time of Christ. It all seems to boil down to a number of key questions. If the Bible doesn't teach a doctrine that is supposedly essential for salvation, can it really be essential? Did Christ and the apostles fail to give us all that is essential for salvation? If church tradition conflicts with Bible teaching, or speaks about what the Bible does not, where should my trust be placed?" Alec nodded with an understanding look. Mark, what if we were to approach those questions by a simple question that relates to all of them? If we were to ask, what did Jesus and the Apostles appeal to as their final standard of truth when questioned by people who had high respect for tradition? The answer to that would be quite clear as shown by Jesus' constant repetition of the phrase, It is written, whenever he taught the people or answered his critics. In the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus employs that key phrase about 17 times. In the Epistle to the Romans, Paul establishes his doctrinal points some 20 times by affirming, It is written. Now that's even more remarkable when you realize that Paul is using, It is written, to explain and prove a new covenant. Although it was a New Testament, it was explained and proven to be authentic only by an appeal to what was written in the Old Testament. Then Anne remarked, and when Jesus and the Apostles used that phrase, they never used it in the sense of, it is written in a church council or tradition. The phrase never refers to a source outside of scripture revelation. It always means, the Bible says, and therefore it is true. The Moors nodded in agreement with Anne's last comment. That's an impressive way of showing what was the authority for Jesus and the Apostles, Mary agreed. Through the various ways that we've looked at this question, Mark and I have become increasingly convinced the Bible and the Church tradition are not on an equal footing. The Bible doesn't seem to share its authority with any extra source. Mary then looked toward Alec and asked, Alec, I'd like your response to a question that's been bothering me as I've begun to reach a number of conclusions about Catholic teaching. Catholics place a great deal of importance on the size of their numbers to indicate that they are blessed by God as His true Church. Mark and I have come to conclude that the Church cannot support a number of its doctrines from the Bible. We have also concluded that the Bible, not tradition, must be our final authority. Now this leads to a disturbing conclusion. Does the Catholic Church's size count as proof that it is the true Church? If not, how can so many people be wrong? Alec nodded sympathetically towards Mary. Those are important questions, and they are often asked by someone who takes the Bible in hand and uses it to test the doctrines that you and Mark have been examining. But look, in answer to your question, the Bible record shows that loyalty to God's truth seldom lies with the majority. In God's dealings with mankind in the past, it has been the few, not the majority, that have been following the right path. Speaking of God's destruction of the world before Noah's flood, Peter reminds the true Christian community that the faithful are few in numbers. I'll read it here from the King James Bible. Once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth now save us. 1 Peter 3.21 That's a sobering reality, Mary. From all the inhabitants of the ancient world, only a few, eight souls, were actually saved. Mary returned, but does that necessarily mean, Alec, that it will be similar when Christ returns to his faithful? That would be a logical conclusion, Mary, replied Alec. Otherwise, what's the point of Peter using it as an illustration to Christians? He makes that clear by the statement, the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. If there was no parallel for the Christian community in the smallness of these numbers, why did Peter emphasize it so pointedly by the words, that few, that is, eight souls? But in addition to Peter, Jesus leaves no doubt that the tragedy of Noah's flood was a precedent for the situation that Jesus will find when he returns to the earth. In Matthew 24, Jesus warns, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24, verse 37 Nothing could speak more clearly against the argument that the largeness of a church is proof of divine favor. The majority rejected God at Noah's time, and these passages show that this will also be the situation until Christ's return. Furthermore, if Jesus was going to bless the true church by steady growth and large numbers, why did he ask the question, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith, Greek, the faith, on the earth? Luke 18, verse 8. If the best representative of Christianity was to be the Church that would claim it is the faith of millions, why would Jesus ask that question and then leave it unanswered? Obviously, Jesus himself didn't have the assurance of the Catholic Church that the faithful would be marked by an overwhelming majority. Anne then added a comment to her husband's reply. The insignificance of size is also indicated, Mary, by another statement from Jesus. It reinforces what Alec has already said about the few faithful in Noah's day. Anne reached for Alec's Bible and turned to Matthew 17, verse 13. Jesus' statement in this chapter flatly contradicts the view that points to largeness of numbers as an indication that the Catholic Church must be the true Church. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. As Anne finished reading this last quotation, both couples remained silent for a moment. Mark and Mary thought about the passages. Alec and Anne, in turn, waited for their friend's reply. Mary finally spoke. Thanks for your reply. I didn't realize that the Bible could offer such a clear response to my question. Obviously, the Bible actually anticipates that many who think they are on the right course will find that they've allowed themselves to be badly misled. Mark looked up at the Adams dining room clock. Then turning toward Alec and Anne, he said, Mary and I can't express how indebted we are to both of you for encouraging us to examine the Catholic faith with our Bibles. I would never have thought that the Bible was in conflict with such basic Catholic doctrine until we searched for ourselves I'm glad you accepted the challenge to do that, said Alec. However, I guess you now have a number of important decisions to make. We do at that, Mark broke in. I said that same thing to our priest this afternoon. But Mary and I were wondering if we could continue our studies with you. We feel that our study of the Bible has really just begun. There are now other questions of doctrine we would like to explore with you folks. We'd consider that a privilege, replied Alec. You'd both be welcome to join us in our weekly Bible class, and we could take up your questions there along with the other class members." Mark and Mary looked at each other in a way that indicated agreement. Why, we'd be delighted to accept that offer, Mark exclaimed eagerly. The two couples completed their evening over a cup of coffee, and then the Moors returned home. A decision that matters. At breakfast the next morning, Mary came into the kitchen and found Mark at the table reading his Bible. Without interrupting him, she busied herself in making breakfast. As she placed his breakfast plate in front of him, she inquired, Mark, we've now come to the conclusion that the Catholic doctrines we've been examining are in conflict with the Bible. We've decided that the Bible will be given authority over tradition. Now, dear, where do we go from here? The Church treats these doctrines as essential for salvation, but we've concluded that they are not God-given. Can we any longer say that we are Roman Catholics?" Mark looked at his wife intently, and after thinking for a moment he replied, I don't think I could say that we are with any certainty, Mary. But if we become converted to another faith, it must be the Bible that converts us. We must give it our prayerful and complete trust. A number of other basic Catholic doctrines should also be examined before we reach any final decisions. However, if we value God's truth, we must follow where it leads us. Our decision matters, and with God's help, it must be made on a sound basis. A sure foundation for true worship, Mary added her comment as she sat down beside Mark, who was now looking at the open Bible page in front of him. Deciding whether the foundation is sure is the decision that now matters more to me than anything else, said Mark decisively. Pointing to the Bible page, he explained, Moses' final words to Israel describe the urgency of these issues. Take all these words to heart. It is no idle thing you will be doing, for the law is your life. Deuteronomy 32, verses 46 and 47. Mary, to ensure that we do find that life, we'll continue by giving our complete trust to the book of life. Epilogue When you add to the truth, you subtract from it. Dear Reader, We reserve this last part of our book to address you in a personal manner. Although our narrative never actually occurred, the issues are very real to life. We live in an age when most people give little serious thought to belief in God. Even among those who do profess some belief in God, there are few that have critically examined the actual basis for their own convictions. If you are an individual who has never given a thorough consideration to the basis of your convictions we hope that our narrative will stimulate you to do so in the spirit of paul's words prove all things hold fast that which is good first thessalonians 5 verse 21 king james version the composition of our book has been prompted by the proposed tour of pope john paul ii to canada the pope's visit will be an important event for both catholics and non-catholics alike Since the Pope's visit will prompt such a wide interest in the most important representative of the Catholic religion, Roman Catholic convictions will also be in public notice more than at any other time in Canadian history. We believe this provides a relevant and timely opportunity to make an appeal to Roman Catholics and any others who are serious about their religious convictions. But why an appeal? The Roman Catholic Church represents the largest proportion of those religions professing to follow the teachings of Christ. It claims to be an authoritative voice for Christ's teachings on a basis that is quite unlike any other denomination. The present writer is convinced that these claims are important enough that they simply cannot be ignored. If the authoritative claims made by the Roman Church are accurate, then others are sadly astray in their understanding of Bible teaching. If, however, the Roman Church's claims for authority are incorrect, and many of her basic doctrines are consequently in error, then the situation is tragic. The present writer and the community he represents sincerely believe that the religious position claimed by the Catholic Church is seriously an error on a number of accounts. We esteem these errors serious enough to jeopardize one's salvation. In view of our own convictions, we would therefore be negligent and uncaring to remain silent. Our convictions concerning the Bible's true teaching are expressed in the narrative through the viewpoint of Alec and Anne Adams. And that of john westwood their viewpoint of bible teaching is representative of the christadelphian community our approach to what we believe are some errors in roman catholic teaching is based solely on bible teaching the christadelphians brethren in christ make no personal claims for divine inspiration rather we have absolute trust in the authority and sufficiency of god's own written message the bible alone is the beginning and end of our basis of appeal Perhaps a word needs to be said about the approach that has been taken in addressing our disagreements with Catholic doctrine. We have deliberately avoided a discussion of all our doctrinal differences. This would make the narrative far too cumbersome and prevent a detailed examination of any one issue. Our objective has been to consider in detail a number of fundamental Catholic doctrines. The Catholic claims for inspired authority and the important issue of Tradition versus the Bible occupy the first five chapters. These are fundamental issues, so fundamental to Catholic teaching that if they are shown to be in error by God's revelation, then the very basis for much of the Catholic religion is seriously undermined. The second portion of the book is devoted to a number of specific doctrinal issues that are bound together by one central conviction. Beyond doubt, the seven sacraments are essential to Catholic worship, as is the belief in the immortality of man's soul. Chapter 6-8 examine the biblical soundness of the seven sacraments, partially by continuing the discussion concerning the Bible versus tradition, but especially by questioning Catholic belief in the immortal soul. The doctrine of the immortal soul is a necessary basis for the doctrines of the seven sacraments. If it is shown to be an error, then the other related doctrines have their foundation established in error. We urge you to take the Bible in hand and look up the various passages that are discussed in the narrative. It is the only way to give serious consideration to the issues. If this is not followed during your first reading, please consider doing so in a second reading. The resource section is an important part of this book found at the back. It is provided to identify authoritative sources for a number of the issues discussed in the narrative, and to provide more explanation for some of the points under consideration. Since a number of other Catholic doctrines deserve careful examination, we encourage you to contact the Christadelphians
1: for further inquiries or to give you a response to our treatment of the issues.